You are listening to episode 30 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the origins of the Elongated Man and Plastic Man. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I'm thrilled to have two brand new guests appearing on this episode. Later on, you'll hear Max Romero join me for the Secret Origin of Plastic Man. But before that, Bradley Null is here to talk about that stretchable sleuth, Ralph Dibney, the elongated man. Welcome to the show, Bradley. Hello, how are you doing? I am doing well, and it's great to have you on. It's it's great to talk to another fan of The Elongated Man. I'm happy you wanted to be part of this episode. I was happy to do it. He's always been the second or third. I mean, I've had other heroes go past him, but he's always been the second or third favorite hero of mine. So well, That's good. I want to know a little bit more about why that is, but before we get to that, uh, let's explain what Secret Origins is all about for any first-time listeners out there. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Most of them don't reach their emotional climax with the main character realizing he's kind of weird, but that's where the story of Ralph Dibney is different in this case. So, Bradley, how did you discover the Elongated Man, and what makes you a fan of this character? It actually goes back to my childhood. There's an album out there that you hear pieces of all the time, a Justice League album. And on it, Plastic Man is told to be a member of the Justice League, and... I was probably seven or eight, just learning how to read, but I knew that the guy who stretched in the Justice League comic that I had was not Plastic Man. (laughs) And so I had to sound out the word elongated man, elongated, like seven or eight, and I have a very strong memory of my father helping me through that and being very confused as to why it was important to me later, which (laughs) that tells you a lot about my father's and my relationship probably from that moment on. So I have this connection to that, and he also was one of he also didn't have a secret identity, which to me was really cool because I, I guess I've never been a big fan of secret identities because that was the other thing that originally drew me to the character was this kind of early moment of geek cred got you when I was a kid, and the fact that he didn't have a secret ID. Those were the two big things that first brought me to him. And then when Batman left to join the Outsiders. He became the detective for the Justice League during the Satellite era. 
And that really impressed me at the time also, because the detective was a more lighthearted character. And mm-hmm. I, I had to think about this, and I realized that, I mean, I, I've told my story on this show before that because of my entry into DC Comics, really, the deep diving didn't come until around the Dan DiDio and Jeff Johns era of the books, about 10 years ago now. I think my first real exposure to the character was in Identity Crisis, which is a controversial book to say the least. But I loved the character in that, and afterwards I read the 52 Weekly series, and I thought he had a really strong presence in that book. And say what you want about the way that he and his wife were treated in those books, it impressed me enough that I thought he was a very interesting and unique character for the reason that you said, that he was a publicly known character. He didn't have that secret identity, that he was for the most part, until I discovered him a happily married character. Uh, And and I really liked that aspect of who he was. It's funny because you didn't discover him until he was controversial like (laughs) that. And this particular issue has some pages in it that I didn't know were in it for reasons we can go into later. Mm -hmm. But the person who I met because of those pages in a college class being displayed almost used... There's a little, there's a like almost a monologue on page 14 where she, they, her and her husband almost used those for her vows. And I talked them out of it. And that was right as the first issue of Identity Crisis had come out. <laughs> and I, I didn't want to really go into why I thought it was a bad idea. And it was, <laughs> so I had to talk them out of that then. It's a, like I said, I have a strange connection to this book. That's an ill and this character. Yeah. In in popular culture, I think getting back to your story of how you first discovered him, I, he was sort of plastic man came first, and to an extent, elongated man was created according to legend because Julie Schwartz forgot that they owned the rights to plastic man. But it's kind of funny. I mean, elongated man could have appeared in the Super Friends, but he didn't. He didn't get a superpowers toy. Plastic man did. Sort of, he was always behind that eight ball. When I was a younger comics reader, because when I was a younger, first reading it, I thought that he was the Earth One version of Plastic Man. Hmm. I wasn't sure. I'm not sure why I thought that. Or and you know, I, I eventually I realized that was wrong. But when I was younger, I honestly thought that the Elongated Man was the Earth One version of Plastic Man. The, the it was, you know, it just for some strange reason his name had been changed in the cosmic ether or whatever. I don't know why I thought that. Um, by the time this comic even came out, I would have known better. But I did think that when I was a kid. That wouldn't so. have been – I mean, I can definitely understand that. And now even thinking about what Plastic Man's publication history was, and there was, there was a lot of question about what universe he occupied because the name changed from time to time and like what the era. and I mean, it would have been a pretty simple fix to just say that Plastic Man was that Earth 2 character or some other, you know, quality comics version of whatever universe they occupied. Indeed. Uh, Getting into the character's publication history, and as always, if I forget anything, please uh, jump in and correct me. The Elongated Man first appeared in Flash, issue 112, back in 1960. Initially believed to be a criminal by the Flash, Elongated Man was soon revealed to be an amateur detective named Ralph Dibney, who could stretch to uncanny levels due to consuming a special drink called Gingold, or Gingold? I don't know how you pronounce it. I've pronounced it Gingold because it sounds like gin. (laughs) It does. (laughs) Makes it easier, yeah. 
Yeah. He made half a dozen more guest appearances in The Flash over the next three years. What separated Elongated Man from the rest of the superhero herd from a very early on was that Ralph Dibney married his girlfriend Sue in only his third appearance, with The Flash serving as best man. Within a year or so, DC established that Ralph's identity as the Elongated Man was publicly known, and he and Sue operated as celebrity detectives. In 1964, the stretchable sleuth began a career as a backup feature in detective comics that would last through the end of the decade. After a couple years of random guest appearances, Ralph Dibney was elected to the Justice League of America in issue 105 of that series. The elongated man stayed active with the League throughout the 1970s and early 80s, while consistently popping up in guest spots in Flash, Detective, Wonder Woman, World's Finest, Blue Devil, and The Shadow War of Hawkman. When Aquaman relocated the Justice League to the Motor City, Ralph was one of the few members of the Satellite Era to stay with the team in Detroit. After the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Ralph's publication history became a little more spotty, as he was no longer a mainstay of the Justice League. After a few guest appearances, though, he did eventually join Justice League Europe in the first issue of that series. Throughout the 90s, he appeared in various incarnations of the Justice League books, be they Europe, International, Task Force, or JLA. In 1993, The Elongated Man finally earned his own self-titled four-issue miniseries, written by Gerard Jones and illustrated by the amazing, and sadly departed, Mike Parabek. That miniseries saw Ralph and Sue Dibney on a European vacation beset by D-list villains. In 2004, as we said, Ralph and Sue Dibney were thrust into the spotlight, though not for very happy reasons, nor reasons that pleased many fans. The controversial miniseries Identity Crisis began with Sue's tragic murder and would later reveal a shocking and heartbreaking secret the loving couple had lived with for years. A bitter and emotionally distraught widower, Ralph was one of the star players of the year-long maxi-series 52. Of course, that series ended with Ralph dead too, and an unfulfilled tease that Ralph and Sue would continue to serve justice together as ghost detectives. Since then, The Elongated Man appeared in Blackest Night and a bunch of miniseries and out-of-continuity stories, but I don't think he's come back properly since the new 52. Do you know if I'm missing anything? Have I forgotten anything? That is, as far as I know, a perfect and spot-on publishing history. Okay, folks, we're going to take a short promotional break, but we'll be back in a couple of minutes with the origin of The Elongated Man. Stop it! November 4th, 1988, Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Kons, the Danegarians, and the Durlins, and they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover, issue by issue. Tie-in by tie-in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Melbourne. Secret Origins Issue 30 has a cover date of September 1988, but according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, would have hit the shelves on May 24th, 1988. 
The book cost $1.50 for 48 pages. It was edited by Mark Wade, and the cover, which depicts elongated man and plastic man tied up in a ginormous human knot, was drawn by the great Ty Templeton. What do you think of this cover, Bradley? Not one of my favorite covers, actually. No. Um, hmm. I like the idea, and it, it, it's an interesting concept, but I don't like the look on Ralph's face in particular. <laughs> he kind of looks like a discarded action figure. There, there so, is a deadness to his face I, I can't it, disagree with. Yeah, yeah. Um, not a favorite of mine. <laughs> I like the cover. I like the idea of it. Like you said, I like the detail that Templeton puts in with them tied up. In a, this amazing twist in terms and arms and legs. I mean, it's great that the two of them, only the two of them could do this cover. Um, I like Ralph's finger kind of pulling down the secret origins. I like Wizzy Winks trying to, like, about to approach untying them. But I think you're right. They're both of their faces. They seem, they, they seem frustrated. They seem tired. And I, I kind of think part of that is the fact that this cover calls attention to the fact that these characters are often used interchangeably with each other, and it, I think it hurts both of their popularity. And for me, I actually have a flashback to a um, Hembeck cartoon, which mm. used to be uh, in the back of uh, a lot of the DC comics when I was a kid. There would be like a little Daily Planet thing, and there would be a cartoon strip that was Hembeck, and it was drawn by Fred Hembeck, and it was a little two- or three-panel cartoon. And there was actually one with Ralph arm wrestling Plastic Man and Sue telling him it was a bad idea and a big knot through it. And so it may be because I have that history with another version of this that I'm it, – it, it, if I think Fred Henbeck did it better in a smaller panel, then – That's hard to argue, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, but I also can't magically produce the cartoon strip, so. <laughs> um, I, I like the idea – and again, this does serve to kind of further confuse the two characters. Mm -hmm. And I might have mentioned that's like one of my the first things I remember ha having a mild amount of geek rage over in my life is being six or seven and knowing that the elongated man and plastic man were different. Right. So, I mean, I may have childhood issues with this image that <laughs> that may actually be it, it may be one of those where I may have to take a step back and say, well, you know, um, <laughs> And Ralph's face really does I, – I, I know I said it before – really kind of does look dead there. He, mm -hmm. it, it's, the, I had a lot – I had disposed action figures as a kid, and that's kind of what he looks like there to me, more than a character. So, Moving past the cover, Bradley, are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of the elongated man? I am ready to tell the secret origin of the elongated man as it appears here. We open with Ralph and Sue not wanting to go back to Ralph's hometown. He does a physically impossible piano trick in his youth. And then we open to the beginning page where we discover that this is a Gerard Jones script with Ty Templeton pencils, Grant Meehan on inks, Tim Harkness on letters, Julia Ferretter on colors, and Mark Wade as boy editor for a character, The Elongated Man, created by John Bloom and Carmine Infantino called The Home Stretch, in which Ralph goes home. We meet his perfect brother, who we never knew existed before, who is mayor of a perfect town that we never knew existed before, because my recollection prior to this is that he was from um, Central City, same as The Flash, but okay. And then all of a sudden, Wally West decides to take him to a bar and a slightly better story, 
where we learn that Ralph was originally obsessed with contortionists and Indian rubber men and discovered that all of them liked the same beverage that was called gin gold. So he decided to try and make an extract out of it. And this being um, a time of Silver Age um, origins, it worked. And he became stretchy and eventually met the Flash and became a co-superhero with the Flash. At this point in time, Wally, who, who used to be, who is, who is the current Flash and used to be Kid Flash, and he discussed Barry Allen for a few minutes. Then um, in a page that is that I was very surprised to find, his wife comes and gets him. They discuss their, their marriage and their relationship and his strange career prior to the Justice League. His brother then re-enters and berates him for a little while, finishing up the origin and ending in a tale in which the reason why nobody talks to our hero is that he's weird, so we should all be normal. I think that's my synopsis. Yes. From that and from our earlier discussion, I get the feeling you did not much care for this version of the Elongated Man story. It bothers me to not enjoy it because I'm a fan of the character and I'm a fan of the series Secret Origins. I bought this off the shelf and it has sat in my collection for that long. I still I still own a copy. I haven't gotten rid of it. I have an almost complete collection of Secret Origins and I really like the series, but there are some comics that you have kind of a photo memory of and when you see the cover you're like, "Oh, I'm so glad to see this one." And you open it up and you read it again and you're really, really happy to, to read it again. I kind of have the opposite reaction to this one because it tends to be in the Secret Origins pile. And I get it and I'm like, oh, Elongated Man. I love the Elongated Man. And then I get to the page where we meet his brother every time where his, I think it's page four. And I just can't read it anymore because, oh, it's that story. And I just stopped every time. I've had this, it, it, it's, it's been that elongated man story for me, the one that I just would rather wasn't there. But it's in Secret Origins. There aren't a whole lot of elongated man um, appearances to have. So no, this one really isn't one of my favorites. And I think I haven't actually gotten past the fourth page in decades. <laughs> and as I said, strangely, it, that, that led to some other surprises as I was reading it. But when you asked me to do this, I was actually thinking it was a different retelling of the Elongated Man's um, origin. I think one that was done in the solo miniseries from the 90s, mm-hmm. which is also written by um, Gerard Jones. Yeah. Um, and I think that for whatever reason, that's what I thought I was going that I was agreeing to cover. Not that that's a bad thing, because this turned out to be really fun in a lot of ways. And and I don't want to sound like I didn't have a really great time coming back to this for the pages that came after where I had stopped reading for all those years. There were surprises there that, while our still aren't necessarily the greatest comic fiction ever out there, are better than those early pages. And that was kind of surprising. So, so anyways. <laughs> no, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. And I admit, I have mixed feelings about this story. Um, there's some things that I like about it, and there's some that I really don't. And this was – now, I didn't start properly collecting Secret Origins until I had an idea that I was going to do a podcast about it a couple of years ago. But this one – this was one of the first issues that I got like when I was really getting into DC Comics a decade ago. Um, and having an interest in Elongated Man, I found out – I was like, ooh, he had his story. I want to know what his origin story was. So I picked this up, and I was like, ah, oh, this – how do how do I feel about this one? And 
Ralph, he is presented as kind of a jerk. He's a jackass for most of this story. He is, and and as somebody, and I'm I'm from a small town, and so I and, and so I understand the wanting to leave the small town mm-hmm. thing. And you know, I, I think I kind of gave him a break there. And but what's what's funny about this series is is that as harsh as I will be on some of these earlier pages, there are pages later that I have seen out of context that are some really great single panels mm-hmm. of, of comic book art of, you know, of, of that word and picture combination that makes good comics. There are single pages where I have seen them presented as examples mm-hmm. and didn't realize they were from this comic when I saw them. Well, I think it benefited from having Ty Templeton on art. He is a terrific <laughs> artist. He, he is. And, and I will not fault the art anywhere in this. The, the, the art is good. And that's part of why when I have read this in the past, I make it past page four or five because I, I, like, I like his art. I like mm-hmm. the, it's a great style for telling an elongated man story. It, it suits the character very well. On the other hand, a lot of the pages of the story are not Ralph being elongated man. I think no. the story <laughs> that Gerard Jones is telling is not necess- I mean, I think Templeton's art improves it a little bit, but I don't think the story is playing to tie Templeton's strengths in a lot of cases. And there's a lot of the and this was this is just something that was going on in comics at the time. Um, there's a lot of Ralph is turning 30, so in order to cement this in <laughs> time, we're going to show fashions from 10 or 15 years ago that weren't in the original art. Right. And, and, and there's a lot of that where I know it was, it, you know, we're, we're a year out of crisis when this was done. Mm-hmm. I, I know that's what everybody was doing. I bought comics at that point in time. Everybody did that. But in a lot of the flashbacks, there's Ralph's hair is longer in some of these flashbacks uh, during his origin than they would have been in the original telling of that story. Mm-hmm. And, and I say that with a certain level of confidence as I found the DC special issue digest number one, the uh, secret origins before I found this mm-hmm. when I was looking for this. And I reread that the original elongated man origin just on a whim. Cause it was there. And he had a very fifties hairstyle in that. Yeah. Just kind of going through this a couple pages at a time. I like, I like the early flashbacks that we get on page two with Ralph, you know, trying, I, Jones does set it up very clearly that Ralph is somebody who always wanted to be in the spotlight. He was an attention hog, and that makes sense given that he revealed his identity publicly so early on. We're sort of like feeding that nature that he always had a thirst for theatricality and having everybody looking at him, and he felt like he didn't get that from his family because his older brother was better than him at everything, so he put on a, an oversized tuxedo to prepare for to going out clubbing. He you know, climbed into pianos to scare his teacher. He got pulled out of class for being the clown, and he was thriving on that bad attention because it was any kind of attention, and he wanted that. I thought that sort of characterization was done very well, very quickly. One of the things that I particularly like about it is that he has his color scheme. That is that light purple, almost gray color scheme that was actually, at the time this came out, a fairly stylish color. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I really, I really like the touch that in all of these flashbacks from his childhood, he's already kind of got his superhero color scheme. Yeah. His, yeah. It's... And I, I like the purple costume because no other hero wears purple, really. It's usually associated as a villain's color, especially in the DC universe. And he was the one <laughs> hero to kind of break from that mold. But, you know, in his first appearance, they think he's a villain. Mm-hmm. I have joked for years with, with – well, back to my friend Z, which is like back to uh, middle school, <laughs> commenting on the fact that, that we thought that, that in those first appearances, yeah, his, he, he was wearing purple. He, he must have been one of the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Ralph okay. has come back home from his, for his 30th birthday party, even though he doesn't want to go. He doesn't like his family. He thinks they're small town. They're beneath him. Everybody realizes he's acting like a jerk. His wife realizes it. His brother, who's like the mayor of town, realizes it, and then... Now, it's funny, because my take on this to this day is 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 actually kind of the opposite, starting with page two, which is that where everybody is ignoring him and he's trying to get attention, normally I would consider what he's doing rude, but this is his 30th birthday, and they are there technically to celebrate his 30th birthday. Mm-hmm. So... I've always kind of felt that he's in, that the town was being a little bit rude to him as well. It's it's always, and again, it may be my issue with this story right there has more to do with being a small town kid than it being a bad story. But I've always felt now, mind you, once Wally shows up and we start to get some drink on, he's, he gets to be more of a jerk after mm-hmm. that. No, you're right. It's the explanation that his brother gives for why the town treats him this way at the end of the story. While nice, I don't think really fully justifies how they treat him in the beginning. It's one thing, Emily, like, uh, so we, we kind of already mentioned it, but by the end of the story, he, you know, his brother says, hey, the town hasn't been ignoring you. The town has been living and dying with pride based on your exploits as a detective and as the Justice League member. We love you. We worship you. Why are you treating us like crap? And he and Ralph throws it back at his brother. He's like, well, how come everybody treats me like I'm weird? And the brother says, because you are weird. And we you, don't yeah. know, you've always been weird. We don't know how to act around you. And that's kind of funny. And it's a nice little emotional climax when you kind of – they have that moment. But the pieces that Jones puts in place to build up to that catharsis – I don't think the math actually works. They are being crappy to him, and he's being really crappy to them. And, and it's a dynamic that, I mean, again, I live in a small town. I've seen the hometown sibling and the left-town sibling have mm-hmm. this argument before. This is not like great theater or, or anything explored when it comes to that part of this. And it, it, it's always kind of bothered me because... It's written in such a way that it's almost as if they're about to kind of, like, we're probably not going to... I mean, the ending is kind of one where Ralph and Sue are talking about they might stay here for a while. Mm-hmm. It's written like, I know, because I followed the publishing history, that we're only a couple months away from them being in Justice League Europe. Yeah. Okay, now I know that, but if I take myself back to this kind of ending in this comic series at the time... This is a, we're not going to see these characters, we're kind of giving them a a temporary hiatus type of ending. I got that impression by the end of the story, too, that these, they were being retired. 
And I was like, I, I wonder if they don't pop up anywhere in comics for the next two or three and, years. And it's that, of course, wasn't the case. So maybe maybe it was a last-minute decision, or it wasn't the same editorial fight they, I, that had to do with Justice League International. I hate to keep dating myself this way, but as somebody who was buying comics at the time, if I remember correctly, Justice League Europe, the idea of expanding that was one of those things that was done very quickly because – Justice League International was very successful at that, mm-hmm. at that point in time. Um, those of us who kind of liked the wahaha Justice League were buying it. So I think that this might have been done before they knew they were going to do this. Well, didn't you mention that Grant Morrison's first issue of Animal Man came out the same month as this? Yeah, uh, Grant Morrison's first issue of Animal Man came out the same month as this. So uh, maybe DC figured they only had room for one happily married superhero. That's that's one more than they will allow in today's comics. Yeah, it's true. It's funny because for years, Ralph and Sue were like the go-to for the happily married couple. Mm -hmm. Um, Very much so in my, my heart and head. So you mentioned that uh, the story takes a little bit of a turn when Wally West shows up at Ralph's birthday party yeah. for seemingly yeah, no I, reason. I mean, they, they sort of put it together, and you mentioned that you thought Ralph came from Central City, the same as The Flash. I can, I mean, they, they do sort of mention he, he kind of grew up maybe in Blue Valley or some small town outside the city. Okay, my brain can accept that kind of change. <laughs> well, the, the, the little town that, they're inter- that they are here right now, Waymore. Waymore, yeah. Waymore is... Never heard from again, as mm-hmm. far as I know. I don't think that we ever get the mention of Waymore or Ralph's brother, to my knowledge, ever again after this story. Probably not. So I think in the I think in his very first appearance, it described him as. Hang on, I'm going to crack open my showcase. Presents the elongated man. Ooh. It says. The facts about the elongated man are not so extraordinary as you might imagine. For example, he was born Ralph Dibney, the second son of an average Midwest American family. So that so acknowledges his, that he did have a brother. He, he had an older brother yep. from the very beginning. Okay. Yep. And actually, we, we see his brother the first time that he sees the contortionist at the fair. His brother's there. Now his brother's not named. I just pulled out the um, digest that I was talking about, and I'm so I'm now I am now looking my own self at his brown hair older brother there. I think that's yeah. the only appearance. So Jones must have picked that up and ran with it. That this brother then went on to become the football star, the prom king, everybody's all American boy, and eventually the mayor, the youngest mayor in the, the history youngest of the mayor town. of the town, which is it's youngest mayor. Like I said, of the town, I don't remember hearing about before this. <laughs> um, and the, the interesting thing is, yeah, is Wally West shows up just, like, out of nowhere. And if I were to show this page to, to, to somebody, they might wonder why the mayor's clothing changed color part <laughs> through. Uh, yeah, but it's on page five. So if, at the top half, Ralph's brother is yelling at him, and then Wally West intrudes in the scene looking like he's eating a, a, a drumstick. A, Drumstick, yeah. a chicken dumb drumstick that looks like to me, yep. But his – so Wally's hair at first is colored the exact same color as Ralph's brother. And then later in that scene, his hair is colored it's, the same orange as Ralph's, but Ralph's uh, hair changed color. Boy, there's a – there's a, yeah, there, there's, there's some, some coloring wonkiness all over this page. Yeah, it's – it's yeah. Now, the inclusion of Wally West – had Barry Allen not been dead, this would have been Barry Allen because Ralph and Barry had that connection. They were good friends. I mean, Barry was his best man at their wedding. 
and Ralph was introduced in Barry's comic. But Barry's dead. It does make sense to use Wally kind of as a surrogate. I mean, uh, one of Ralph's first appearances like in Flash comics was in one of the Kid Flash backup strips. So they have known each other for a long time. But this weird friendship that they seem to have, even, I mean, and, clearly, clearly Ralph has to tell him the story because Wally's never heard it. And not to be a continuity snob in a book aimed at continuity <laughs> snobs. But again, knowing what's going to happen later for these characters in Justice League Europe, there is a several issue early on subplot, not like a great big subplot, one of those little character building moments Mm -hmm. where Ralph won't shut up about Barry. Every time Wally gets around him, he's like, you know, well, you know, Barry wouldn't have done it that way. And eventually Wally like sits him down and goes, I'm tired. I'm done. Just don't do that anymore. And Ralph looks at him and goes, okay, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you a story about Barry and you're going to tell me a story about Barry. And they go through a little mourning process. And it's one of those character beats that I really like for both Wally West and Ralph Dimby. I, mm-hmm. it, it, I remember it because I really liked it. And this scene actually kind of undercuts that entire subplot. Yeah. I didn't really think about it until I was right here looking at it and thinking about where this fits in continuity. Because, as I've said, I've sort of mentally avoided this comic for a while. So I hadn't thought about that. But no, but him showing up here, it's a good... I like the character moment of having another superhero who you know. You're right. If it had been Barry, this would have been a great scene for mm-hmm. Barry and, and Ralph. Yeah. It would have been a much better scene if it had uh, – I hadn't thought about that when I was reading it. But It strikes me that this is sort of the third secret origin story that I've covered in a couple of episodes. That is the backstory of the character, his history, his origin, is framed – within another story that is pretty much just a conversation between characters. And I brought this up when Aaron Moss and I talked about Nightshade, and I brought it up when Bass and I talked about Wally West on the Flash annual special. And what I didn't like about the Nightshade origin was that there was no reason for the story to be told that way. It was just fluff ultimately it was just the characters talking and giving an excuse for the character to tell the story but one that was ultimately superfluous because you could take out the origin of nightshade if you never read that that doesn't affect the character at all whereas wally west's origin in that annual does kind of propel the character in a certain direction based on the nature of him talking to his psychiatrist throughout that origin story and now coming to this one It feels like we're going one direction. It feels like there is a point to Ralph needing this cathartic kick in the side of the head where he realizes, hey, your hometown does like you. They do pay attention to you. Your family loves you. You don't have to be a jackass. But ultimately, I mean, sort of what you you came down to. Nothing in this... I mean, this story is very disposable. The elements that are introduced in the story, like Ralph's family, his hometown, this concept that he and Sue might get a house in this town and stay there, none of it is ever brought back. None of that is is, is ever brought back. And like I said, even this fairly well-written, I I enjoy the bar retelling of the origin. I I really like that. Even that is... Unfortunately, as as I nitpick it for continuity, you know, kind of undermines other stuff that haven't happened yet that will come later. And it is part of why I don't like this story in general is a lot of what's in it 
and and that's not to say there aren't some. There's not some. Like I said, I really like the art. I'm. I'm. We're going to come to some pages where I'm going where where I'm going to say nice things. I promise. And like I said, I like this. I like the page with the origin. I really like the hippie version of Ralph talking to a. Uh, <laughs> To, you know, just just to let you know that that, that it was the it would have been the 70s when he did that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I it's it's one of my favorite little pieces of art here. But even even that this is kind of a continuity troubled story as well, which is kind of a shame since it's somebody's origin. And those are usually where you want to keep the continuity a little tighter. All right. Um, they have their drinks while he leaves because he's just passing through. So, well, now. You have the you have the several pages of flashback, which which are nice. But then you have that page where Wally actually leaves, mm-hmm. and not as a superhero comic, but as a romantic comedy comic. Page ten is a beautiful single page. Oh yeah, yeah. The entire page is a story in and of itself. You could really put that up and know everything you need to for that bit of the story. And mm-hmm. I have, I met a friend of mine, my, my my friend Susan. We met because. We were in a communications class, and we were writing about um, cross-genre, mixed-genre film and mm-hmm, mixed-genre mm-hmm. performances. And I was avoiding going to going the comic book route because that's always my go-to. And mm-hmm. um, and I was amused when she put up this page ten and page fourteen when it comes up later as an example of a cross between superhero and romance comics. And the way she talked about it, she was absolutely talking as if these were purposely a romance, a, ro- a romantic comedy superhero comic that had been written as a cross of these two genres. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure exactly where those had come from, but I knew pretty much that she was wrong. And I didn't call her out in class, and that's how we became friends. <laughs> and so I've been searching for those two pages for a lot of years. And they're in this, I mean, we still have the presentation. We've joked about it. And as I said, normally when I go through, when I've gone through this comic before this, I don't make it past page four. I put it down. I I, I look and say, wait, there's a Plastic Man story in here. I look at that and go, oh yeah, I don't like that Plastic Man story either. It goes back into the thing and I don't look through it again. So for, that would have been 97. So, So since 1997, my dislike for the brother character in this kept me from solving a mystery that I solved because of your show. Your nose was um, twitching and you wouldn't even let it. it, it would, yeah, my mystery sniffing nose needed to, to pull something out of that. And I still think, because I've seen them out of context so often, that pages 10 and 14 are both beautiful and could stand alone as like a webcomic somewhere. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the origin retelling parts are, I mean... It's art. It's art retelling a story. It, those are never going to be the most exciting parts of that. Yet in some places here they are. So, anyways, that's yeah. My little tangent story. Since we ended up hitting that piece of artwork, is that I, I met somebody because of these pages, but I didn't know they came from this book until you asked me to do the show. Little side story. Well, you look at those pages, and they are this nice little microcosm of these two's relationship. It's such a delightful, whimsical, and wholesome and innocent relationship that was sadly tarnished by identity crisis and everything that came after that. But, I mean, it's hard not to root for Ralph because, and I think especially for comic book lovers, fans like us, people who were fixated on you know popular geek and nerd culture, 
Ralph is the oddball. He is the weirdo obsessed with weird like circus freaks, and he he's a little bit out there. But he manages to f- attract a gorgeous debutante, a beautiful rich woman who at first falls in love with him just because he's kind of the class clown. He uses his gimmicks and his theatrics to to win her attention, and then it eventually becomes love, as she says. It, that she fell for him because he was funny and weird and different and outside of her life, and that eventually became an actual genuine spousal love that justified their connection. And that's that's the... That's the story that we all want, and it's it's wonderful that they got to experience that. We can live vicariously through their romance. Everybody wants the wife who will walk up behind you in the bar when you're talking about her and just giggle mm-hmm. about it and, mm-hmm. and pick you up and take you home. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, that is that is what – and then, yeah, and then you have that beautiful speech that, 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 as I said, I've seen page 14 out of context a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's one of – I was informed when you asked me about this and I and to do this and I, and I talked to my most recent ex-girlfriend about it. I was like, I don't know. And she was like, you cried when Sue died. I was there. You shed a tear for Sue. You must do this podcast. Those, mm. those were the words. And strangely, even though I, I even though there are parts of this story that just make me insane, the relationship, what makes their relationship beautiful is here in this origin story. For all the continuity glitches, I might argue, their relationship is nailed Mm -hmm. in this story. Just, I am in shock that I didn't know that the good parts of this story were here. Because, mostly because I have a hard time believing they're attached to the parts that I don't like as much. (laughs) Um, And I think so much of the good stuff... I don't think we can say enough about what an MVP Sue Dearborn Dibney is for this character. I think I think these two have to be together because, I mean, you go back to the cover. When you look at Elongated Man and Plastic Man, I think for most people, Plastic Man is going to be their favorite because Plastic Man can do more than Elongated Man can. His appearance is more extreme than Elongated Man's. His history is deeper than Elongated Man's. His supporting cast is more colorful and vibrant than Elongated Man's. And when you think of Ralph as just the detective, well, okay, is he as good a detective as Batman? No, Batman's a better, flashier detective. Is he as good a detective as Martian Manhunter? Probably not. Martian Manhunter's a better, flashier detective. So what does Ralph have going for him? It really is it's, Sue. It's Sue, and yeah, that's it, and and why? Like people are like, why don't they bring you know elongated man back for the new Fifty Two? I don't think there's a place for him in DC right now. I don't think there's a place for him because you have to bring the two of them back together. You need to be able to tell romance stories. Their stories should be that cross blend that genre of romance and detective fiction like a Finn Man movie. They actually name drop that. They are like Nick and Nora Charles. Or you, you need them, and that is the function. That is where, that is the, the little niche of the DC universe that they can fill that nobody else can. That This charming, wonderful little romance pocket with little closed room mysteries that they can, they can investigate. One of my favorite parts. It's it's not part of their mythos when this is done because it comes out of the justice out of the Justice League appearances later. And in fact, it's even 
it's, it's one of the things they talk about in Identity Crisis, mm-hmm. um, which is which is there's a Sue does a mystery, tries sets up a mystery every year for Ralph, and Ralph knows that she's doing it, even like 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 catches is like knows her and is a detective. So he knows that she's doing it every year from the moment she does it. Mm-hmm. But he goes along with it every year because it's sweet and he, that's his girl. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that, yeah, it's, 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 it's part of why I do, why these characters mm-hmm. do slash did have a heartwarming place. I, and I'll be honest, I loved Identity Crisis, despite, despite the controversy, despite what it did to, to some of my favorite characters. I really liked that. I don't like a lot of what came in the aftermath, which yeah. was exactly what I thought was going to happen. I, I, Identity Crisis, I read and was like, this is a really great series, but I've been reading comics long enough to know what this is going to do to the rest of the DC line. Right. I wish it was an out-of-continuity story that didn't have the lasting repercussions that it had. But besides that, the actual story itself was incredibly well-written. Brad Meltzer knows these characters, and he just laced it with so many wonderful character moments that made you fall in love with guys like Ralph and Sue. I mean, just in just a few quick pages, you're right, that, that moment that she always plays this little mystery, and of course he knows it. He's, he's smarter than that. He's going to solve it before she's even thought of it, but he lets her do it because they love each other, and it's a, it's a wonderful moment. But Yeah. So anyways, back to the... Getting back to sort of the, the final, the finale of the story. Getting back to once they've had their heartfelt moment and they kiss. And, and they kiss. She walks him back to the party where his brother basically calls him out. And, and his brother basically says, you, you, you're wrong. You always felt like you didn't get any attention from this town that we hated you. But we have been following your exploits in the Justice League and uh, your road-traveling detective show. And... Uh, it's, it's, I, I want to like this ending. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really do. I, I have now gone back and reread this. And as I've said, I have really nice things to say about the center of this. And I really want to like this ending. I, 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 there's a moment at the bottom of page 17 where there's a good Ralph and Sue moment where, where, where he's like, Oh, come on. It's not like I want to show them up. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's a great little Ralph and Sue moment right there. And, of course, it's always great when you have the ending of, no, you know, we really love you and you really love us and we should all come together. And part of why I like DC Comics of this era is the optimistic, yay, everybody side of things that that you see a lot in even this story as things were beginning to get darker. But then you have that this final page with four panels of Ralph and Sue discussing the fact that they should stay in a way that totally rings every bell for these characters will be gone for a while. And a final panel of, well, I guess Ralph didn't really get it after all. And I actually, I like the last panel. I think that's kind of cute with the the final joke that he's like, you know, try and talk about sports. I don't know anything about sports. Try anyway. Just blend in. And the old man saying, say, Ralph, what do you think about the Cardinals? And Ralph's like, I think they're terrific, Jim. I love the way they use black smoke to signal that they haven't picked a pope yet. It's a funny yeah. little gag. I like that the, the caption above it, the and so, has this stretchy little finger pointing towards that uh, panel. That is right out of the original, you know, I was used by Carmine Infantino from Flash. Yeah, he was the artist in the first appearance, so yeah, that is yeah. a really nice touch. Um, yeah. so, again, this seems like the origin story is framed by something that feels like it should have greater consequences to Ralph and Sue. It's setting it up like it's going to be that way, 
but we don't get that payoff. And the thing about this is, is it doesn't feel like a superhero comic to me. No, it doesn't. It, it, it feels like 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 Love and Rockets or some kind of drama story to me more than you know any. And it's funny because I went into this absolutely hating this story, and when I came out the other end, I really wanted to like it. I, I think it may be what exhausts me about this story overall is I really like parts of it. There are parts of it that I think are just incredible. The art is good all the way through, but the writing isn't quite and. This is a writer whose stuff I have liked. Um, how early is this in, uh, in Gerald Jones's writing career? Is this? I mean, he was doing a lot for DC around this time. Let me. Yeah. Let me go to Mike's Amazing really quick. <laughs> I love living yeah. in the future. Uh, oh shoot! Oh my gosh! I didn't even look this. Up. According to Mike's oh. Amazing, this was his first comic. Okay. Okay. Well. Wow. Okay. You know, I. I I wish I would have looked that up because we could have talked a little bit more about that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, okay, so the short answer to your question was this was quite early in his writing well, career. I was about to say that if this was early in his career, then maybe these are all mistakes that I might be willing to forgive some. And if this is his first bit of writing, that, um, wow, okay. Um, now I think I want to be impressed that he caught Ralph and Sue's relationship so well on his first professional gig. I think there's that. I also, maybe, just maybe, because he was still pretty young too, but I feel a lot of Mark Wade's influence on this story. And maybe Mark Wade fed him some of that material that kind of shaped this story. Maybe. I say that, I say that with no... No actual uh, evidence for it. That's entirely possible. That would that would merely make me more comfortable. No. Um, <laughs> so so okay. So this is early in his in his. This was wow. his first published work for DC, this, this according first to published work for DC. I it, okay. I still don't like the beginning, and I still want to like the ending, but it feels clunky. But that said, as somebody's first professional work, there are parts in here that are so perfectly nailed. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I mean, I agree. Like he, he gets he gets the Ralph and Sue connection. Yeah, he gets the Ralph and Sue connection, and well, and he would later. I mean, yeah, the, I mean, he came the, back. The four issue miniseries, Elongated Man's only miniseries, was written with almost the same team. It was written by Gerard Jones, Ty Templeton, who drew this story, is the inker on that book. Um, with Mike Parabek drawing it, so it's it, it's the reason why I was convinced because, as I mentioned, I'd seen the, the some of the pages out of context. Mm-hmm. I was convinced that they were in that miniseries because both the writing and the art are so similar. Um, so, wow, this is mm-hmm. we so, learned something new. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's it's. I, I still don't. I still don't like the character of the brother. But even that character comes from Ralph's first appearance. So yeah. I can't even say something about that. I'm going to have to. To over the course of this very talk, I have changed my opinion of this story uh, probably three times. <laughs> Which, as I said, it's it's there's there's just such strange connections to it, and I haven't looked past the fourth page in decades. You're doing your own little than, contortionist trick in order to, yeah. to find your... And it's... Okay, so with that new little piece of evidence kind of changing the shape of this mystery, I guess we can sort of wrap this part up. What, were, what are your overall thoughts? If you, can, if you can come to your third or fourth evaluation, how, how do you feel ultimately about this story? 
ultimately, as somebody's first published comic work, this is not bad. The scenes between Ralph and Sue are dead on and are everything everybody loves about them as a couple. And those parts are great. And the brother in those parts are probably something that were mostly tacked on so that we could put these two characters to rest in an editorial-type decision in, again, somebody's first published work. So, you know, it's interesting. I came into this really disliking this this story, but it's not the best piece of comic writing or fiction out there. It doesn't fit continuity very well. But as somebody's first story, if you tell them to ignore the parts with the older brother, although it does lead to the great joke at the end, that is one of the better punchlines. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you got to even keep those parts. I would say this is a fairly good story. I, I, when you first mentioned it, I thought I was really going to hate it. And it's been a roller coaster ride of interesting discovery and really. I like this story. I I won't say I love it. There are parts that make me crazy, but I like this story. So I have gone from I hate this story to I might recommend it for somebody who was interested in the best romantic couple of the DC universe. Well, then I feel like I have achieved my mission with this podcast and I can now retire and it's your responsibility to finish the next 20 episodes. Uh, really? <laughs> really? Because if I remember correctly, this series was better when it started. <laughs> we will see. We shall see. What other elongated man stories would you recommend for people interested in the character? Really, any of the collections of Justice League International, Justice League Europe. I don't think there's a collection that has the miniseries from the 90s in it. No, I don't think that has been collected, which is a shame because that was. It's 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 really a shame. I mean, it's it's a silly story with a lot of bad food puns, but it's um, but it is kind of fun. And and it's got Mike Arabek art, so it looks like something out of the Justice League animated series. Yeah, that was his style, so it looks really fun. So yeah, any of those, any of the Justice League collections that have that that will have that, but. You know, and then and then there's you know the unfortunate end of you know of them as a couple and all of that in Identity Crisis. Mm-hmm. But I can't not recommend Identity Crisis because just before they make you cry with she's gone, they make you cry even if you've never met these two characters. Mm-hmm. There's there's a moment where you're like, oh, they're the sweetest couple ever, right. and then oh. You made me love them as a couple, and you did that to me, uh, like any good murder mystery. And mm-hmm. the fact that it was this couple made it punch me a little harder. Um, but you know, my ex, my ex, who I, my, my most recent ex, who I was dating when that came out, didn't know who those characters were and was impacted by it. So, if I'm going to re- talk about the elongated man, I have to say that um, Identity Crisis is something people should read. Just it's going to tear your heart out and make you hate everything that you thought you loved about superheroes. Um, Following up on that, the 52 weekly series, which was collected in a couple of trade paperbacks, Ralph was one of the regular features in that. Most of that was pretty good. I I enjoyed that series. I certainly, Um, I think the, the end story, the, the very end part of, of Ralph's arc in that is, mm -hmm. um, I consider it one of the best ends to a character ever. Although if, if they'd given me the series that I wanted, um, Ralph and Sue would have adopted the um, boy detectives from Sandman <laughs> and run around um, solving mysteries. That uh, would have been for, good. Yeah. But yeah, so. him, him walking around with the helmet of fate was pretty fun. 
Yeah. And then there is a Showcase Presents the Elongated Man volume. Uh, it's over 500 pages, black and white, but it collects his first appearance in Flash, backup appearances in Flash, uh, his backup fa- feature in Detective Comics that he had for years, um, plenty of good short little detective stories in Which that. I've only read some of. I haven't read all of those. It's good. It's fun. Well, I usually end this with uh, giving my guests a chance to plug any projects or anything. Was there anything that you wanted to mention or recommend? Um, th- th- this is my first foray into podcasting, so I'm not. I don't have anything of my own to recommend. Okay. I everything that I like has moved to the fire and well, not everything, but most <laughs> everything that I like has moved to the fire and water network at this point in time. So I'll give a shout out to the fire and water network because I love most of what you guys are putting out. Um, thank you very much. And I think that's all I got. So thank you very much. This was, this was a very fun experience for me. No, thank uh, you very much, Bradley, for being part of the show. I had a great time talking to you about this character. Thank you. Have a good one. Okay, folks, don't go away because I'll be back after the break with the secret origin of Plastic Man. Trend is Magnus punches reality at twotruefreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at twotruefreaks.com. of Plastic Man. And who better to help me out than the creator of the fan blog, Eow, it's Plastic Man, Mr. Max Romero. Welcome to the show, Max. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Thank you very, very much for being part of the show. You were one of the first guests that I reached out to almost a year ago when this idea for the podcast first hit me, uh, just because I knew you loved this character and I knew you had to be my guest for this origin. Well, you know, if it makes you feel any better, it does not seem like it's been a year. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. I hope I gave you enough material in between to to keep you entertained. (laughs) Why were you the first person that I thought of when I thought of Plastic Man? What is it about this character that makes him so special to you? You know, Plastic Man is one of those characters that on the surface seems very simple. You know, it's a very 
high concept sort of thing is just, you know, he is this man who can change his shape and he makes jokes and cracks wise and there you go. But the thing I like about Plastic Man so much is that the more you read of his stories and the more you look into his background and that sort of thing, he becomes this really kind of more in-depth character with a lot of layers that I I don't think a lot of writers have have really um, peeled away at yet. But you, you catch it here and there. And, you know, I think there's just so much potential with this character, more, even more than what's already been done, that, um, you know, I'm, I'm always excited to see Plastic Man. When did you first discover the character? Oh, like a lot of people, I <laughs> I found him on Saturday morning. It, it was the, the Plastic Man Adventure Hour, if yeah. I'm remembering the name correctly. And, um, yeah, and that, that was my first exposure to him because, you know, like a, like a lot of kids of, of – my age <laughs> we won't get into that too much the um you know i was watching super friends and yep. you know a lot of saturday morning cartoons and plastic man just really naturally rolled into that interest mm-hmm. and um it, it was it's a lot of fun <laughs> you know I've, I've i've managed to get the dvds and i watch those you know more often than i care to admit do and, they hold up you know they actually do <laughs> they're, okay. they're not too bad you know if you ignore everything around Plastic Man, <laughs> you know, Penny can be a little annoying, and she did, unfortunately, give us baby Plaz. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hula Hula is a little embarrassing. But, you know, altogether, it's it still really works. And, and the actor who voiced the character, I think, kind of set the stage for every characterization, every animated characterization after that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's I think that's, that's pretty impressive. I was trying to remember when I first discovered Plastic Man, and I couldn't... I, I can't quite remember when it was. Now, I know I had a t-shirt, and I mentioned this when I had Rob Kelly on the show, I think back when we were talking about The Phantom Stranger. I talked about this t-shirt that I had when I was in 5th or 6th grade that had five heroes on the front. It was Batman, Robin, The Flash, Wonder Woman, and Superman. It was like stock art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. Praise be his name. Just <laughs> cut and like pasted on the front. And then on the back, this weird assemblage of Green Lantern, Aquaman, Plastic Man, Hawkman, and Green Arrow. Again, same stock art. And for some like I, I want to say that was the first time I saw the character, but I knew what his name was. Somehow hmm. I knew his identity. It like seeped in. Maybe it was from those cartoons, but I didn't remember really watching them. But I knew who it was because I had this friend, and I, I told this story before, this friend who looked at the characters on the back and said, oh yeah, I know those characters, and got every name wrong. Like he looked at Green Arrow and said, that's Robin Hood. And he looked at Plastic Man and he said, that's Stretch Armstrong. And I just kind of shook my head. And like even then, I was like, if you could be like a hipster, poser, smug comic book fan when you're only like 12 years old, that's what I was. Right. But he's always been a character that fascinated me. And I think you, what you were saying, like with the depths to his character, on the surface, he does seem like just this clown type of uh, a jokester for comedic effect and how, the way he stretches and the types of adventures. And as we'll see in this first story, in his first adventure, he started off as a criminal who is shot by the police and left for dead. This is a dark origin for what will turn out to be a very comedic, lighthearted character. Mm-hmm. And and you could see that especially with uh, Jack Cole's you know original stories in Police and then later in Plastic Man. Plastic Man was 
fighting crooks. He was fighting. I, I think I mentioned this on somewhere else once before, but you know, horrifying people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was there was a, a mad scientist who destroyed entire cities with a giant eight ball. He fought the Axis powers. <laughs> you know, all these sorts of things. The the comedic thing, I think, started coming later. And even then, that was left more up to Woozy Winks, his his partner, mm-hmm. and the things going crazy around him. But ironically enough, Plastic Man was always the straight man. And these weird things were happening around him instead of him being the catalyst for it. Yeah, that's certainly not the approach that the Batman Brave and the Bold cartoon took with the character. No, no. Which is, you know, speaking of Brave and Bold, you know, his, his appearances, which... My first introduction to Plastic Man in the comics was either Adventure or Brave and Bold. It was mm-hmm. one of those. I'm not, I can't put my finger on it. But, you know, in the Brave and the Bold stories, he was homeless. <laughs> you know, Plastic Man was a homeless hero who that Batman was kind of like trying to help. And then eventually he said, oh, well, I guess that's what's going to happen to Plastic Man. <laughs> and it was it was sad. It was just this sad way for this character to, to kind of end up. Yeah. Have you done much research into Jack Cole and like anything about him? I, I just remember like Siskoid and I were talking about him a few episodes ago when we talked about Midnight, who was created more or less to be basically let's create a version of the spirit that we can use unless in case something horrible happens to Will Eisner during World War II. Well, I know that Jack Cole and and uh, Will Eisner were friends. And they worked together in the. They actually worked together in the same studio. And Cole would ghost on on the spirit when Eisner was busy. And you know, if you if you read any of Midnight, Midnight looks exactly like the spirit, and it is basically kind of a parody of his of his friend's very popular strip. And it, you know, it had Midnight, who was pretty much a carbon copy of the, of the spirit. It had the very unfortunate um, sidekick of a talking monkey and that sort of thing. But you know, Cole kind of did everything. You know, he he did horror comics, he did crime comics, humor. The the famous image of of a woman that was used for seduction of the innocent. Mm-hmm. Of of a woman getting stabbed in the eye with a with a hypodermic needle is uh jack cole that's that's his story that's his image i never knew that mm-hmm. yeah that's that's a jack cole image <laughs> and, wow. and uh and yeah so he he was very prolific and he he pr- could pretty much do anything and his style one one of the things i like about jack cole is his style is was constantly progressing and he was always kind of reinventing himself and I thought that was always really interesting. I, I think that's interesting to see in any artist. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a master like Jack Cole, it's it's uh, very gratifying. Mm-hmm. Let's actually get into a little bit of the publication history for this character. And as always, if I leave anything significant out, feel free to jump in or correct me. Created by cartoonist Jack Cole, as we said, Plastic Man debuted in the first issue of Police Comics back in 1941 and continued in the comic until issue 102 in 1950. His strip was so well-received that Quality Comics published a self-titled Plastic Man series in 1944. That book was released quarterly for a couple of years and then went bi-monthly in 1948 until 1956 when the series ended with issue 64. After that, well, the publication history gets a little wonky because there were several Plastic Man series, some starring the classic Eel O'Brien, some starring Plastic Man Jr., some set on Earth-1, some set on Earth-2. 
He also had a year-long stint in Adventure Comics in 1980, as well as numerous guest appearances in Brave and the Bold, Justice League of America, and DC Comics Presents. And naturally, Roy Thomas used him fairly regularly in All-Star Squadron. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, Plast starred in a self-titled four-issue miniseries that came out just a few months after this Secret Origins appearance, and after that... His appearances were spotty for about a decade, but he did join the JLA during Grant Morrison's run, and he got another self-titled series by Kyle Baker in 2004. That's pretty much all I know about. I'm not sure what his more recent appearances have been. Do you know, or have I left anything out? His appearances have been really spotty (laughs) since the New New 52 started. Uh, He had a very brief cameo in, I believe it was JLI number one, where he was part of a of a screen of characters who right you know yeah, it was just 52, yeah yeah oh. yeah and um he also made an appearance in was it like one of the forever evil books where they kind of showed yes. his origin yes that yeah. was the one and yeah and then they dropped it <laughs> for some for some reason you know they they showed him falling into the vat and never saw him again and more recently he was in um injustice year four annual number one and actually that was more than an appearance it was pretty much a plastic man story Hmm. and it was it was really really good (laughs) it was i i really enjoyed it quite a bit it's not the world that i want the characters to inhabit but i liked a lot of what they did with in Injustice, that series. Um, there was a certain Game of Thrones quality to it in that like right. the characters like every issue had one of those WTF moments where they either <laughs> car- they killed somebody that you cared about or had one of the characters that you cared about do something awful and really, you know, inspired me to keep coming back. But I also think it was the most true to form writing of Green Arrow and Black Canary that I had read in years. No, I agree. It's it's not a setting I'm I'm a fan of, but it's been some compelling story writing yeah. here and there, you know. And and um, the year four annual number one, it's a it's a mouthful. <laughs> it, um, it was written by Tom Taylor, who I'm not all that familiar with, but he I think he did a really really nice job of and the the art by Bruno Redondo was really good too. Taylor did a really good job of balancing Plastic Man's silliness with his ability and they they kind of hit again on the idea that morrison brought up you know plastic man is the most powerful you know person on the planet sort of thing because when he is going to the hall of justice everyone loses their minds (laughs) everyone kind of like freaks out and he basically walks up and starts making fun of everybody and it was it was a it was a good uh it was a good issue i really enjoyed it uh, let's get to Secret Origins issue 30. Before we talk about the origin, did you have any thoughts about the cover by Ty Templeton? Well, you know, I liked it. I, I thought it was, um, it's always nice to see them. I, I, you know, of course, it's it makes a lot of sense to, to tie him in with the elongated man. And it, it was nice that they got woozy on there and, and they have, you know, that little thousand and one knots joke in there without making it too obvious. Mm-hmm. I think it works really well. And I think it's interesting that it has that, solid black background which really kind of makes the characters pop but at the same time i always kind of because you can see ralph's hand going up and for some reason it always makes me think of a of a light post even though there's no light post there i'm not sure if i like the black background or not i i don't know if the characters pop as much as i want them to i it's another instance where i feel like maybe i would like a black and white pencil sketch of this cover more than the actual fully colored version 
I can see that. And I, I think probably part of the reason they did it is because of the white in Elongated Man's costume. Mm-hmm. Maybe that would have gotten lost in a different background. Maybe. And plus, you know, and the their bodies are super knotted up in <laughs> they're just really entwined in each other and they're both kind of face down on the ground. Mm-hmm. And maybe uh they decided that that was already a busy enough image that yeah, they didn't yeah. want anything in the background. Right. The, the, the only thing that really bothers me about this um cover is Ralph's face. <laughs> he just he totally he just looks like a mannequin. I don't know if he's given up or what's happened to him, but he just has no expression whatsoever. All right, Max, are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of Plastic Man? My pleasure. The secret origin of Plastic Man. This is written by Roy Thomas with penciler Stephen DeStefano, Paul Frick as inker, Gene Simic, letterer, Liz Berube, colorist, and Mark Wade, editor. It starts out with Woozy Winks, who is Plastic Man's uh, right-hand bumbling man, flipping through the 1988 DC schedule and claiming not to know what DC stands for. Uh, he kind of sort of remembers and he says, oh, yeah, now I remember. And he also says, oh, quality comics, whatever happened to those guys? And he flips it open to find the secret origin of Woozy Winks. And he's very excited, and he calls Plaz to come look at this. And Plastic Man comes over, and he takes a look at it, rips the page off, and finds out that somehow <laughs> the origin of Woozy Winks has been pasted over the secret origin of Plastic Man. And uh, Plastic Man promises that he will get to the secret origin of Woozy Winks as soon as they do theirs. And uh, we come up to a big splash page of Plastic Man standing over the city, rousting out crooks uh, for some reason – the, in this story, Plastic Man has one black sleeve, which I have never seen before or since. They are kind enough to remind readers that this is adapted from a, and adapted is an important word here, from uh, Jack Cole's original story in Police Comics number one, which, as you mentioned, was in 1941. From there, we go to um, the uh, Crawford Chemical Works where we see an older night guard listening to the radio before abruptly turning it off so that he can try to find his Fibra McGee. Uh, meanwhile, since he's not paying attention to the fact that they were just doing a report on robbers going into the Crawford Chemical Works, that gang is breaking in and heading for the safe where they have uh, a dapper man in a black pinstripe suit. He's saying, don't rush me, Skizzle. Nobody rushes Eel O'Brien. And this is our first introduction to the Eel. And the other gang members want to know why he – Skizzle Shanks, who is the gang leader, why he lets Eel O'Brien talk to him like this. And he says because he's the quickest safe cracker in the business. And as soon as he says that, the safe is open and they start taking out bags of money – well, actually bags of gold, another 50 in bills and somebody's lunch, which someone – one of the gang says, hot dog, which is a little disturbing because apparently it's a can of gherkins and a fish on a bun. The, Appetizing. Uh, yeah, appetizing. Yes, very much. Head and all. Uh, one of the gang members says, why would you say hot dog? He goes, well, I'm kind of hungry. And the elderly night watchman comes in and says, so am I. He says, hey, what am I whispering for? I'm the law. And the gang decides to make a run for it. The guard decides to shoot and says, darn thing was loaded. What do you know? Manages to wing Eel on the way out. And Eel crashes into a, a barrel of acid, which splashes all over him. And amazingly enough, does not melt him completely. And he says, hey, you guys, wait up. And they give that famous line, adios, eel. And he says, you putrid punks, while they you know, peel leather out of the place. 
we go back to the night uh, watchman who is now unloading his gun at a rat with a with a watchman's hat on for some reason uh, who has stolen his gherkin sandwich and we go back to uh, to uh, the eel running away from the Crawford Chemical Works and we also get a look at a, another mustachioed man this time in a red and yellow bathing suit with huge ears and a sign saying you are now leaving city limits and he will become important well Important is relative. He'll he'll show up again later. So we see Eel going through the the swamp, and he's happy that he's he has, he says he says made it. But damn this acid! It's got in the wound, stinging like blazes. Got to keep going. Can't let the cops find me. And he's going deeper into the swamp, higher into the mountains before he passes out. The next thing he knows, there's a loud banging noise that wakes him up. And it turns out to be Brother Willis, a monk who is hunting flies with a frying pan. And he apologizes for aiming at one of those pesky flies that landed on your bed railing. And Eel wonders where he is and how he got there. And Brother Willis tells him that he is in Rest Haven, which is a mountain retreat far from the troubled world. And he knows Eel's name. And the Eel wants to know, how do you know my name? He's, by the way, not only is Brother Willis... Uh, trying to swap flies with a frying pan, he also has roller skates with the cross on them. Of course. Uh, <laughs> of course, as, you know, most monks do. But he tells the eel that the police trailed him to Rest Haven, but he turned them away. And when eel asks him why, Brother Willis tells him, because something told me you are a man who could become a boon to his fellow beings, not a curse if you were given a chance. And eel O'Brien kind of shows a little bit of, of his uh, background here, and he says, a chance, that's something I never had. My folks died when I was 10, and people have been pushing me around ever since. Till finally, I got tired of it and started pushing back. I, I think we get as much background into Plastic Man's uh, history before he became a crook than we ever do again, which was uh, in the original story by Jack Cole. Mm-hmm. So he loses his temper, and he, he, he shoes Brother Willis out of the room, and he says, I'll be back when you're rested. And so alone, the eel is kind of just relaxing and he decides to stretch his arms and he essentially stretches his arms <laughs> until they just keep stretching. And he goes, holy crow, I'm stretching all right, like a rubber band. And he starts to pull on his face, which is also stretching. And he finds out that it doesn't hurt and he's uh, can take any shape that he wants now. And he keeps massaging his face until he uh, is misshapen. And he says... Uh, when he tries to get out of bed, he says, I, I fell like I got no bones. All I can do to pull myself together enough to, huh? What's happening to me? And uh, he starts to pull himself together and he figures out, well, he decides that it must be the, the vat of acid that fell on him when he got shot and that that acid got into his bloodstream and made this change happen. And that's also when he discovers that he no longer has any toes. <laughs> he's, just, he's just got flat paddles for feet and he, and he faints again. Several days later, uh, he is well enough to leave the monastery. And Brother Willis, still in skates, still with his frying pan, says goodbye to him. And he says, I can tell you're a changed man. And Eel himself seems to have trouble believing that. Brother Willis says that he has decided – he thinks that he has decided – that Eel has decided to do good in the role from now on. That's all. And Eel, who has revenge on his mind, says uh, – because Brother Willis asks him, what do you think I meant? And he says, oh, nothing, nothing at all. Goodbye again. He goes, and Brother Wilson says, farewell and remember to do good. And the eel says, oh, I'll do good, all right. But first he's going to go and, and get even with uh, with uh, Skizzle Shanks's gang for abandoning him like they did. And again, we see um, our bathing suit 
uh, weirdo with another sign saying city limits one mile and he is wearing pink Easter bunny ears and is surrounded by rabbits for some reason. <laughs> uh, we cut back to uh, the gang, the Shanks gang. And they're planning another job. They're going to rob a bank messenger when he shows up tomorrow at the corner of Abercrombie and Fitch with half a million in bills. And the eel shows up and says, can I come along? And they're, everyone is very shocked that Eel O'Brien is not only alive, but apparently doing just fine. And then we have an interlude, which, which is uh, presented to us both by Woozy Winks pushing the panel aside and by the bathing suit guy again. Uh, showing up with a sign says comic interlude laugh here and he's jingling a little jester bell and woozy says and they all lived happily ever after and plastic man says woozy i'm telling the story so please let me finish and woozy says what about my origin i used to be invulnerable you know which is a nice little callback to uh woozy's first appearance in, in police comics and uh plastic man says later okay he says now where was i and he picks up the story where he was the eel gets his share of the money from the Crawford job, and he says, oh, we were just holding it for you. And the eel says, oh, I'll just bet you have. And they begin planning the next job. They follow the bank messenger into a, into a building, and the eel is driving the getaway car. And he says, you guys get going. I'll keep the motor running out here. And Skizzle says, I still give the orders in this gang, O'Brien. We'll go get him. You keep the motor running out here. Anything you say, Skizzle, because this is – you know, a funnier Plastic Man origin than the original. <laughs> uh, they say going up, and go certainly we're on the first floor. And uh, one of the gang members gets uh, stuck on the on the first floor. Has to well, actually, it's not a gang member; it's Skizzle. Skizzle gets left behind on the uh, on the first floor. He can't catch the elevator. He has to run upstairs. He pushes a Girl Scout out of the way, and another Girl Scout says, "You stepped on my sister's foot," and cracks him over the head with what looks to be like a caveman style club <laughs> and says see this zelda number 576 it's specially painful and this is in the 1000 ways a girl scout can kill and uh skizzle falls back down the stairs back in the elevator the rest of the gang uh pulls their guns and steals the bank messenger's uh satchel full of money and they disable the elevator with a very technical as they say way with just kicking the hell out of the <laughs> out of the handle and they escape up through the escape hatch. And one of the gang says, I sure wish Skizzle was around, though, to give us a helping hand. And there is a giant hand coming down on top of him. And when they look up, there's Plastic Man, one floor above in an open elevator door. And he's reaching down with giant hands to uh, grab the two crooks. And he says, name's Plastic Man, but you can call me Plaz. And someone else starts shooting at him from above. And he says, that shot nearly took off my schnoz. What I get for being nosy, I guess, and he kind of stretches his nose down to his chest uh, because this is before he knows he's bulletproof. Apparently, this is Rocco covering them from above. The bad guy says, come on, he won't stick his mitts out while Rocco is covering us. And in a uh, caption box, Plastic Man says to the audience, I might have if I'd known then that I was bulletproof. All I wanted was to take care of Skizzle's mom and make off with the loot myself. Hey, I was a crook, right? That's what those kind of people do. And so the bad guys get out and start running upstairs. And in the next panel, we see Plastic Man's first uh, shape-changing disguise, which was also the, the, uh, his first shape change in the origin. And he is a rug. <laughs> he's he's a, a very obvious Plastic Man rug. 
but these guys don't uh, don't notice it. And when they step on him, he yells, "Tag, fellas, you're it, all of you!" And he blankets out to grab them all. In he fairness, when you're a criminal running away from a superhero, how often do you look <laughs> at the rug at your feet? That is true. <laughs> that is true. I'll give you that. And plus, this is his first. You know, this is his first outing as Plastic Man. I, I'm not expecting, you know, moving gears or anything. So, yeah, Plastic Man manages to grab one of them, and the other guys make a run for it. And Plastic Man just starts kind of beating on everybody. And again, he's got that weird one black sleeve thing, which I don't know where that comes from. And he throws one of the – one of the – Rocco, actually. He throws Rocco into the wall and gets dressed down for it by the janitor who wants to know – you know, hey, Sonny, don't you know you're damaging public property there? And he says, hold these crooks for me, Pop. I'm going after two more on the roof. And at the same time, Skizzle is finally catching up to everybody. He's still running up the stairs. But the argumentative janitor decides to pull his fist back in, in anger and manages to pop Skizzle in the face and knock him back down the stairs. Skizzle's not having a good day. The two crooks who managed to make it through the roof are trying to get off the roof, climbing a rope, and Plastic Man bursts out and starts chasing them. In a window of, of the building, we again see our uh, bathing suit man. He's just kind of watching what's happening, and then he has a sign that says, down with obligatory fight scenes. So he pulls the two guys up onto the roof, and Skizzle again catches up and manages to push Plastic Man right off the roof. It says, 20 stories straight down is enough to kill any man, even him. And one of his partners says, let's beat it before the cops do get here. And we get down to an apparently very fancy lady with her four dogs and her, uh, I'm not sure who this guy is, I guess a chauffeur, who also has his own dog in his own chauffeur (laughs) (laughs) uniform. Uh, And she says, now hurry up and do your business, my little darlings. That's what curbs are for, isn't it, Jeeves, if you say so, mum? And the plastic man bounces down in front of them and says, playing through. Um, and all the plastic man, all the uh, plastic man, all the dogs have uh, scared looks on their face, except for the chauffeur's dog, who seems very unperturbed, as mm-hmm. professional chauffeur dogs are. As soon as he's on the ground, plastic man changes back into eel and is waiting for them in the car. And the other men are telling them how they just barely got out with their skins intact. They drive off, apparently hit a little old – well, not a little old lady, but a, a rather large lady <laughs> for some reason. Eel just kind of bangs in her while they tell um, – the gang tells Eel how they were stopped by – they were almost stopped by a guy who stretched like a slingshot. And he actually says, sounds to me like you dope's been hitting the pipe, <laughs> which I'm, I'm a little surprised to find that in a, in a 1988 comic. But uh, Skizzle tells him to uh, just shut up and drive, and they are feeling pretty happy with themselves. And one of the game members says, I don't even mind you checking me under the chin, boss. And he says, I ain't. And he says, no, then who? What? Oh, spit. And Eel has stretched his arm around the back outside and to the back of the car to put his hand in through the other side and starts stretching his fingers to, to capture everybody, including poking one guy in the eye, choking off another one, and basically just, you know, one hand, literally one-handed is is capturing these guys. And then tosses him out of the car, saying, bye-bye, boys. Tell the boys in blue that Plastic Man sent you. And one of the gang members says, he's going to turn us over to the Cub Scouts? And he says, I got the dough, but I also got air sick. And then he barfs into the bag of money. And Skizzle says, so how come this rubber freak didn't get O'Brien? We cut to the police department where they are beating on somebody. (laughs) They're just pounding on someone. uh, Or saying, oh, this is... Uh, all right, you're a tough nut to crack, but we'll beat you yet. Crack, darn you, crack. And it's a gang of at least eight cops going to town on something. 
And when you see it, it's actually a tough nut to crack. But one of them says, oh, almost got it that time, Sarge. He goes, yeah, that's the hardest shell I ever saw on a peanut. Uh, at that same time, the men come crashing through the window. The gang members come crashing through the members, through the window, uh, right above a garbage pail with guns in it that says, old and used guns, 25 cents. And from outside, there's a voice that says, here's a little present for you, officers. And the cop says, huh? Why, it's Gizzle Shanks and his mob. Because we've been after these mugs since Dillinger carved his first soap gun. Who put the finger on them? It wasn't a finger, Captain. It was a whole hand, like some pink tentacle. And meanwhile, the gang is completely uh, disoriented. One of the gang members tells the cops, sure, there's dough in that bag. You think a bank messenger just carries it on his lunch? And Skizzle tells him, shut up, Melvin. Or my associate would like to sit down if you cops don't mind. He goes, now, anything further you want to talk to us about, you can talk to our Seamus. And he says, yeah, don't try to trick us because we ain't taking the fall. And they somehow fall down a flight of stairs that just happens to conveniently be there. And then the cops basically say that a confession is necessary because the bills a messenger was carrying were marked. So they don't need a confession. And Eel is driving away saying, boy, I never suspected fighting crooks could be as much fun as being one. And no cops on my tail after this little caper. Maybe it's from being around Brother Willis or maybe I'm just wising up at last. But I think maybe I'll go on for a while being Plastic Man, the longest arm of the law. And from there, it's Plastic Man saying, which I did. And he goes, pretty soon, I even gave up being Eel O'Brien and got a working job with the chief in the FBI, putting away hoods like Electra and the Spider and the Mirror Man. And he talks about how he took some grammar lessons, I guess, to take the edges off his gangster speak and learned how to turn into even more shapes and that he was bulletproof. And along the way, he met Woozy who, and helped him get on the straight and narrow also. And Woozy is off in the distance somewhere as Plastic Man is talking to the audience. And he says, hey, what's your problem? Everybody's waiting. And Woozy is talking to the guy in the bathing suit and saying, this guy is trying to steal my thunder plaz by doing the epilogue himself. And he says – and the bathing suit guy finally talks and says, why not? I've been around longer than you have. And Plastic Man says, I give up. You two stay here and argue it out. When you're through, Woozy, you can join me in our new series, okay? And Woozy says, who are you anyway, twerp? And he says, you already got the last name right, Sonny. And he goes, I'm Burp the Twerp. And shakes his hand and his head comes off and his arms come off and a bird comes out of one ear and horns come out of his head and – there's a dresser drawer coming out of his chest, a chest of drawers, I guess. And then he says, well, I got to go, so bye-bye. And he helicopter blade pops out of his head, and he flies off. And Plastic Man comes back and says, Woozy, do you know who that was? That was Burp the Twerp, the super son of a gun. He's got all the powers of every single superhero all rolled into one. If you ever get him mad at us, he'll come back and take over, and then we're all out of business. And uh, Woozy lets out a yipe. And says, he's come back for me, Plaz. I'm behind bars. you got to help me. Help. And it's Plastic Man who has shaped himself into the words, the end. And says, hmm, maybe I should. Nah, I'll just let him stew for a while. And the last part of it is a nice little banner at the end that says, dedicated to the memory of Jack Cole. All right. Thank you very much for that recap. What did you think of this story? You know, I... I like it for what it is, <laughs> which is a very silly retelling of uh, Plastic Man's origin. What I don't like about it is the way uh, this is kind of a signpost to how Plastic Man is going to be treated as a character going on from here, almost basically until, like you said, until Morrison has him in jail. And even Morrison kind of played him for laughs, mostly. I, I enjoy the art. It's it's very 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 cartoony, which became yeah. a kind of a uh, a default for for how Plastic Man was was depicted. Mm-hmm. But I think it works. 
the uh, he took some for the most part it is a very uh, faithful retelling of the origin mm-hmm. but you know obviously with the beginning and end kind of you know sandwiching the the story the framing device with woozy introducing the story and then woozy and burp the twerp at the end i believe that was actually the idea of uh, steven de stefano the artist Mm. Um, from the All-Star Companion Volume 4. I think that was in one of the notes that uh, it was Stefano's idea to use Woozy to introduce the story since Woozy became such a big part of Plastic Man's story in his saga, but he wasn't in that first one. And yeah. the whole deal with Burp the Twerp, I guess he was he was a regular fixture in police comics, but mm-hmm. he was usually just in like one-page superhero parody strips. Right. Um, but I think there was a crossover with Plastic Man and Burp the Twerp once or twice. This is actually the second time okay. uh, Burp the Twerp has, has uh, paired with Plaz. The first time was actually in Police Comics 23, and it was in one of those single-page gag strips that you mentioned, yeah. where uh, in that one Burp the Twerp is is bragging about what a great mm-hmm. hero he is until Plastic Man shows up mm-hmm. and says, oh, I heard my name, and he kind of faints. <laughs> and so... Yeah, but Burp the Twerp is actually, as he said in the story, he's been around longer than Woozy. Woozy uh, didn't show up until issue 13, and Burp the Twerp showed up in Police Comics number 2. Right. And um, he is actually another Jack Cole invention. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's kind of nice. I think this is definitely a, a love letter to Jack Cole. And it's a nice way to get that reference in there. And it's also a nice way to get Woozy in there. I, th- I think Woozy is... is pretty important to to uh the plastic man character right i i agree it's a love letter it's nice to have burp the twerp in here in this in the segment even though he is peppered throughout the story in these little weird kind of easter egg moments but i think it really only works if you know that history if you know that context Mm -hmm. because the first time i read this book i had no idea who this guy was i just i didn't know the history and i'm like who the heck is this? He's really distracting. He's taking me out of the story, and I, I, I found it more intrusive than anything. So that's a very good point because even when he's introduced, when even when he says "I'm Burp the Torp," you still don't know who he is or why he's important to this story. It's just kind of another silly, right. silly thing thrown in. And yeah, if you don't know who he is, it seems really gratuitous. Mm-hmm. Overall, I really enjoy the story. I mean, like you said, it is what it is. It's. It's a strange origin. It, we, it feels like we're got three different stories or three different tones. Like in the beginning, we have first of all, like looking at on page two, I love the splash page. I think De Stefano knocks it out of the park with that uh, that title page. I don't know why Plastic Man's costume looks like this. I mean, I know that he was missing a sleeve in the original, but why the one of them is black? Right. I don't know. But getting into the story, it starts off. It's this crime caper. And I think uh, Roy Thomas plays it up for a little bit more laughs when you've got this sort of comical, bumbling security guard listening to Fibber McGee and Molly on his radio. Right. Um, I think the writer and the artist, they're already playing this up for more laughs than the original story was. And as you said, that'll sort of set the stage for the kind of Plastic Man stories we get. But the tone of this first one, it's, it's a bank robbery gone wrong. And the main character is shot in the back by a security guard, bumps into this thing, and is just doused by acid. (laughs) Right. And, 
I mean, and left to die by his by his by exact, his partners. I mean, and we say they don't make them like they used to, but whatever kind of acid they used in the 1940s <laughs> clearly doesn't eat away at this guy like it should have been. It just like infects his bloodstream, but it's it's still kind of a horrific image. It um, is. So we get our character bleeding to death, burned or scalded, like just coated in some sort of toxic chemical waste, running away from the city, just wanders off into the woods because the woods is right next to the city. And then we have this weird moment, and I don't know if Jack Cole was a fan of Les Miserables when it first came out, because <laughs> this whole thing with Father, Father Willis, this is like something out of that with like after Jean Valjean like collapses at this monastery – and the mm-hmm. police come looking for him, but the father's like, no, I sent them away. I protected this criminal because something about him. I just I, – I had a feeling that he was he was bound for better things. Right. And, and that's – I mean, that's glossed over really quickly in the original story. And here, again, I, I don't know why Thomas and DiStefano are depicting him this way with the frying pan and the rollerblades. This is doing everything they can to undercut any moment of seriousness in this story. The way it reads to me, I think, because in his other stories, Roy Thomas plays it pretty straight, and he also is extremely faithful to the to the original, the origin stories of these characters. Yep. You know, and you, you've talked about that on on past episodes, where sometimes it's almost too religiously uh, strict as far as following the story, the yep. original stories. Um, and this one, they just totally, you know, went rogue. <laughs> In terms of how he was telling it. And the only thing I can think of is that maybe this was a direction from DC. Because I think you you kind of mentioned it before. This is actually Plastic Man's first post-crisis appearance. Mm -hmm. And it's only, I think, a couple of months, a few months before Plastic Man number one came out. I think it was four months later, I think. Something like that, yeah. The the Hilary Barta and right. Phil Foglio. Uh, so that one was tra- already clearly in the works. I think right. Roy Thomas even mentions it in the back matter in this, that this was plotted before that story was coming out. But, I mean, they they were certainly kind of in the works at the same time. Right. So I, I kind of think that this was probably heavily influenced by that. I think they wanted it. This was supposed to ease people into that series, which itself was was a lot like this. A lot, the tone of it was was very much like this series, except it was more contemporary and you know, woozy blames things on Reaganomics and that sort of thing. Right. Um, <clears throat> you know, contemporary. Doesn't woozy start off in Arkham Asylum in that? He does. He was kicked out of. That's that's what it is. He he gets kicked <laughs> out of Arkham because of Reaganomics. Oh, uh, so, and uh, and Plaz is actually uh, trying to kill himself when Woozy finds him, and Woozy you know says, "Hey, you know this power is great." And they flip. They literally flip a coin to decide whether or not Plastic Man is going to be a good guy or a bad guy. And I don't know if that was originally planned to be a four-issue miniseries or if it was supposed – I think it was supposed to launch uh, uh, a regular series, but it never got that far. Mm. But the the tone of that, what Foglio wrote and, – and Barta – you know, Hilary Barta is, is an artist I, I enjoy quite a bit, but he does have that very cartoony style and it's, yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's a lot like what you see here. And I think I, – I don't think that's an accident. Mm-hmm. There was a- – controversy seems like way too strong a word but there was a little bit of of question or confusion about it because that series i think retold the origin so like just four months after this one right they reset his origin like that was the post-crisis origin of plastic man but then if they're both in continuity 
I mean, after the crisis, there's no more Earth 2. That means there were two Plastic Man characters throughout <laughs> history, one in the 40s and one in the contemporary 80s. Right. So Yeah, it, Plastic Man's history gets very complicated. <laughs> but yeah, the yeah, I, it, it almost kind of makes, unfortunately, it makes this story kind of moot because, like you said, they, they redid the origin again in uh, Plastic Man number one, and then that was it. For a long time after that miniseries, there there was no there was no Plastic Man, you know, to be found. I mean, he would make the, the occasional appearance here and there, but it was almost as if they didn't really know how they didn't know what to do with Plastic Man. I, I think that's a problem that they probably still have, actually, to be honest. But you know, because he lends himself so so much to, to comedy, but his roots are not as a comedic character. This he it comes back to one of these things where I wish. Uh, I mean, DC is never going to get rid of any of the characters that they have acquired, but I kind of miss the multiverse for some of the characters like Captain Marvel and like Plastic Man. I think Captain Marvel and the the sort of Shazam-verse should be distinctly separate from the rest of the mainstream DC superheroes. Yeah, I agree. And I think Plastic Man probably fits in that too, and a lot of the quality comics characters too, and maybe the Charlton heroes too. Maybe mm-hmm. they should have been on their own little separate worlds because I think uh, – I mean it's it's the problem with – I mean go back to the cover and this actual issue. I think Plastic Man and Elongated Man, they do a lot of doubling up in terms of what they can do visually and iconography right. or iconically. And just by the nature of the characters and the way they've been presented, I mean – Ralph Dibney was integrated into the Justice League right away, and he kind of fits into that mold where he's he works in that team dynamic. And I'm not sure that Plastic Man does. I mean, you can play him as the X Factor, the the guy who doesn't belong. But right. I don't know. I, I think I think he might be better off in his own in his own world. Um, and I have to tell you, I really enjoyed uh, Plastic Man's appearances in the All Star Squadron. I think he, mm-hmm. he worked very well in that World War II setting as an FBI agent trying to root out Axis agents. You know, I, I think that is a perfect fit for him. Yeah, with that or, or stick with the uh, Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters type of mm-hmm. quality comics heroes. Right, right. And I, th- I think he does, he does work in modern comics. I think what happens, though, is that I think writers, for some reason, have a hard time with the character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's I, I don't know if that comes from editorial or if it's the writers themselves but it, it seems like a writer will, will get him and either try to make him super dark which is of course you know highly popular for a while now or try to completely make it into some crazy you know id based character which you know in, in a way to me doesn't make sense because how could how could a character like that function as a person much less as a hero and there's, it, it seems to be as if finding a balance is, is very difficult. I think, and this sort of just hit me, the way you were sort of describing him in the 40s and in how oftentimes he was actually, despite his extraordinary powers and despite all the crazy visual gags that you can do with him, you said that Jack Cole often presented him as a straight man and used Woozy Winks and the other oddball characters around him as the comedic foils. This this isn't a necessarily a one-to-one comparison, but I think the closest thing that kind of jumps to mind in terms of tone, of doing something 
using a freak type of character as the straight man would be something like Hellboy. I yeah. mean, Hellboy wasn't played for laughs, and he wasn't played for as uh, he was just a, the sort of blue collar Joe workman hero who happened to have like this crazy, this crazy look about him. Where and you've got all the other sort of supporting characters, either for humor or for exposition or something. Maybe Plastic Man would do for an approach like that. Now, certainly not for like the horror slash noir type of stories that Hellboy was used for. But in a kind of pulp detective type of setting, mm-hmm. maybe that would work. I think so. I mean, one of one of my favorite iterations of the character is is him as an FBI agent. I think that works so well, and I think it I think it's an inter- interesting development for a character who starts out as a criminal, one of the worst criminals, apparently. Like, you know, from the from the stories you read, especially the original Jack Holtz. You know, yeah. he is like number one on the wanted list, mm-hmm. and. For a person like that to have such a life-changing event that he becomes a hero and not only becomes a hero but works for the government, there's a lot of interesting stories you can tell with that. It's a shame that they kind of get away from that. That that, that gets ignored a lot of times. You know, they, they always want to talk about how he was a criminal and then he became a hero and sometimes he struggles with that and sometimes he doesn't. But they ignore this whole part of his story which was an ongoing part of his story for a long time. You know, he was an FBI agent, then he was an agent of the NBI, which was basically just the FBI sort of, um, the CIA really. And, uh, you know, I, I think that gives him structure and it allows for writers to send him on all these crazy adventures where crazy things happen to him or around him and he deals with them instead of him being the catalyst for all these things. Getting back to the the issue, just uh, a few final notes. I think my favorite moment, my favorite, I mean, a lot of the humor in this didn't really work for me, but one of the few, like, genuine, nearly laughs that I got was the moment that where you, you pointed out where the old sort of haughty-totty woman is walking her four dogs beside <laughs> her chauffeur, and her chauffeur also has a dog in a chauffeur <laughs> outfit. And that, that itself is funny enough, but just Plastic Man comes bouncing through like a like a bouncing ball, and actually, he shouts, "Playing through!" I can, <laughs> I can see that. I can hear that in my mind. And I just, I got a laugh out of that. And the dogs freaking out. That joke kind of worked. Yeah, I think so too. I, that's you know, and that's the thing. I don't want, I don't want Plastic Man to be humorless, but I don't want him to be crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if right, that exactly. Sense. And yeah, that that playing through line, I think, makes makes perfect sense. It, it's it's a great line. It's a great scene. Mm-hmm. And then on the very next page, and you mentioned this, the scene where all of the cops are in the police station just <laughs> wailing on, we think it's a person, it's set up, say, a tough nut to crack. I don't know if it's just the times that we live in and all of the news about you know people being killed in police custody and all of these extreme violence, but I got to that last panel and I was like, oh, God, what is ha- oh. Yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't want to turn this page. This just got too dark. And then he turned. It's like, oh, they're actually trying to crack open a nutshell. I was like, oh, and I, was just like, yeah. I was like, oh man, I needed a reality break. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, what has the news done to me? <laughs> this is supposed to be my escapism, but it's yeah, it's it's a it's a nice little bit of uh, of satire. Mm-hmm. You know, how many twenty something years later? Right. But yeah, no, it works out quite a bit. And I have just to get back to that uh, splash page, like you mentioned, it's a great splash page. There's so mm-hmm. much going on in there. It's definitely kind of a uh, a nod to to Eisner, obviously, and his spirit yeah. splashes. But also the way the the crime is spelled out there, mm-hmm. 
is uh, it's kind of a callback also to the um, opening, uh, not the opening splash. The uh, that splash is a call out to the cover of Police Comics number twenty eight, and it's uh, it's a fairly well known image of Plaz writing the word crime and shaped like a like a horse, like a bucking horse, hmm. and um, you know it, it's very reminiscent of that. And so there there's these little um, there are these little Easter eggs throughout uh, this story. Again, like you said, you know, if you don't know them to begin with, they they kind of just drift by. Yeah. But you know, for anyone who has read a lot of Plastic Man or even you know some Plastic Man, the older stuff, there are these little visual treats. The art throughout this story is fantastic. I mean, Stephen DeSnefto was a, a true cartoonist. He packed so much into this. Oh yeah, it's yes. amazing. And and you look at the you read Roy Thomas's letter in the back matter, and he said that this was originally supposed to be penciled by Michael T. Gilbert, who drew the Secret Origin of the Spectre. Hmm. Uh, and Gene Hendricks and I we talked about that on a previous episode, and I liked the art. I just thought it was a bad fit for the Spectre story. I thought he would have been great on this one. I thought this would have been more towards his, his speed, but I can't knock this stuff. I think this was perfect. Uh, like every every single panel in here is packed with tons of detail, tons of little jokes, things that you don't expect. I don't know how much time he spent on this, but it's it's pretty incredible. That is crazy because it, it's easy to see something that looks so cartoony and kind of assume that it's simple. But, you know, as you're saying, there's a lot going on <laughs> he spent he spent mm-hmm. a lot he obviously spent a lot of time drawing this yeah. and it and it looks great what do you think of i mean it seems like an obvious pairing but what do you think of this being paired with the elongated man story it's i i like it cuz it seems like there there would be a sense of symmetry and that they are perceived to be very similar characters but i also think it's kind of fuels this unfair compare and contrast notion that like you you can only pick one or the other and we're just going to throw them both into the same book to save space and mm-hmm. I kind of like that they're together because you get this amazing cover and how jumbled they and how tight right. up they look together but is it a thing where they're kind of vying for attention and they kind of overshadow each other or compete with each other for this sort of gimmick of being the stretchable sleuth type of crime fighter. Right. Right. I don't know. What do you think? I think the plastic man story suffers a little bit for Mm. it. And again, this goes back to how humorous it is, which is even more obvious, um, or I guess more blatant when it's compared to the elongated man story, which is very straight. And it's actually you know, a little depressing to be honest. Um, yeah, it is. And it's and it's uh, the artwork is more realistic. the The story is is um, much. Uh, it, it's a deeper kind of emotional story. Then you get to the Plastic Man one, which is and it's almost jarring because of how how much of a one eighty this is in terms of of the story, the way the stories are being told. Right. I don't know. It's it's weird because the elongated. I mean, it's it's obviously more fun and more action packed. I think than the elongated man story, but I think also it's a little harder to take it seriously because of the way it's it's packaged with with that story. I can see that. And again, I assume that's kind of what they were going for since mm-hmm. that uh, that miniseries was going to be coming up in four months. Right. And yeah, and that was one of the things that Secret Origins when they were 
when they were on point, they they used these stories to springboard new material, new books. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any final thoughts about this story? Not really. I mean, again, I I think for what it is, for the obvious humor comic mm-hmm. it, it's trying to be, I think it works very well. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a fairly faithful uh, retelling of the origin. I mean, the, all the major points are there, including Skizzle, which is, you know, it's always nice to see Skizzle show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, visually, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of callbacks to uh, the Euro origin story. You know, the the rug disguise and the way he comes up, even the way he's thrown off the roof right. uh, later in the story. That the way his body is positioned is it's a different angle, but it's this it's the exact same way it was done in the original story. Uh, you know his bouncing off the ground when he when he gets to the bottom. You know all those are are things that are true to the origin, and uh, a lot of the funny stuff that's thrown in here is not at the expense of the original origin. You know they're they're added to it, but it, they don't take anything away, and I appreciate that. I think for me, what it comes down to, and I I try to ask myself this question after every story is, does this make me want to read more Plastic Man? And my answer is yes. Um, oh, good. <laughs> I, I want to know. I want to read more of the character. Do I want to read this version? Am I going to be able to read this version? Does it have to be, you know, after this version? Is that the only kind of humor version, or do we get the more serious version? Which leads me to my next point, my wonderful segue. Mm-hmm. What would be your recommended readings for somebody who wants to know more about Plastic Man? Where I would start is it depends <laughs> if you <laughs> if you want to get into the original plastic man and and the way his creator jack cole uh envisioned him and later you know other artists and writers but who goes wrote for, wrote, wrote for him but he oversaw all that you know you would need to go with uh, the archive editions which are out of print and hard to find and um expensive <laughs> but but also well worth it. The the books are beautiful. Uh, the stories are great. The digital and, the digital comics museum online you can actually get a lot of if not all of those like the old police oh, comics. They've yeah. reprinted it, and you can find them. It, they're legal. You can like find like download them or just uh, preview them online. Uh, you can read the original source material. But yeah, I know there's some of the archive editions. Like he had, he had eight archive editions at least, which is a lot so, yeah. for one character. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I yeah, know no, I, I think, I, I I think the first two are out of print. But some of the other ones you might be able to find kind of cheap. So yeah, if you can find them, you can usually get them for a decent price. And yeah, you're you're absolutely correct. I forgot all about that. That you can you can uh, read them online. It's certainly worth the, the time for me. I mean, they're they're great stories, and you really get to see. You know, I hate to throw the word around, but it's – you know, Jack Cole was really a genius. And you could see his uh, storytelling and his artistic ability kind of growing, and that's exciting. And he's always adding on to uh, the character, and, and that's, uh, that's always – for me, it's a, it's a joy to read. If you want to see some more of Jack Cole's stuff, his later stuff, he uh, ended up doing uh, strips for Playboy. Uh, once he left comics, mm-hmm. and there's the classic pinup art of Jack Cole, uh, which is available on in stock trades and uh, edited by Alex Chun. That's a really good look at how his art evolved. As I said, it's it's not like Plastic Man at all, <laughs> <laughs> but you can also see that same artist. You can see how he developed 
in that direction. And it's beautiful. A lot of it is, is done in watercolor and it's, it's, it's uh, beautiful to look at. And the one that I always recommend, it's, it's uh, much more current, uh, much more modern, is um, Plastic Man by, uh, you know, I always... I, is it the Kyle Baker it, one? Yes, thank you. <laughs> yes. The one I always recommend is, is Plastic Man by Kyle Baker. It's a 20-issue run. And unfortunately, I didn't get past that. But he manages to, to tell his story. And it Baker is, is very good at... Uh, not only satire, but he is good at a, a kind of humor that works with Plastic Man, and I think, for the most part, he did a he did a really good job of balancing the seriousness and topicality uh, that you can do with Plastic Man, along with the humor. I've I've read the first trade of that and had a lot of fun with that. He fights a vampire in the second one. <laughs> so. Definitely got to check that one out. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. All right. Well, Max, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Secret Origins podcast. Where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more about your thoughts on Plastic Man or anything else? Okay. Well, the best place to find my thoughts on Plastic Man is at itsplasticman.wordpress.com. And that is the home of Yao It's Plastic Man, uh, a Plastic Man dedicated blog. You can also find me occasionally at uh, my original blog, uh, greatcaesarspost.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter, Maxo Romero, and that'll find me. Thank you very much one more time. It was great talking to you about this character. Thanks to you, Ryan. It was, it was a lot of fun. I had a few other thoughts about Plastic Man after my talk with Max. Thinking about his origin again, he comes to his change of heart very suddenly and without a whole lot of external motivation, unless the rollerblading monk really put a come-to-Jesus whammy on Eel's head. And that got me wondering, what if Plastic Man wasn't ever a hero? What if he stayed a career criminal? How would that change things? Given a writer with imagination, Plastic Man is insanely powerful and dangerous. He could challenge the entire Justice League. I'm not saying he could take them out, but can't you see a cover with him wrapping around and morphing and fighting five or six of them at the same time? He might not be a cosmic-level threat, but Plastic Man could have been a Silver Age JLA villain like Amazo or Kanjar Row. I'm not saying I would have preferred this iteration of Plastic Man, but it would certainly be a different niche, and it would end the comparisons with Elongated Man. The other thought I've had with how much they've tried to make him a silly character in recent years, why isn't Plastic Man the DC version of Deadpool? He can do more than ambush Bug, so Plast could be the fourth wall-breaking Looney Tune whose mind is as malleable and misshapen as his body. Or am I just thinking of Jim Carrey's The Mask? Anyhow, let's get on to the listener feedback from last episode, which was Secret Origins Annual Number 2. It was a very popular episode, which doesn't surprise me since it was all about The Flash. Some people said it was one of, if not the, best issue of Secret Origins. Some people thought the Barry Allen origin story was one of the best. Some thought it was one of the worst. Almost everybody enjoyed the Wally West story, and pretty much universally across the board, Everyone hated the constant Flash-centric puns during the episode. Well. Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange, Captain Marvel at CaptainMarvel75, Comic Reflections, Craig101, David Gallagher, Diablo Frank, Fire and Water Network, Greg A., Jim Bal, 
Kylie Prom, Richard Field, Siskoid, Sin, Trekker Talk, Willie Yarbrough at Black Vulcan 69, and Zavisha Patrol. David Gallagher tweeted, This episode of the Secret Origins podcast features one of the best Flash stories ever. New Facebook likes and shares came from Andrew Leyland, Anthony Durso, Bass Levesque, Ben Benincasa, Bill Seckman, Carlos Mucha, Carlos Pita, Christopher Luke, Chuck Rodriguez, Clinton Robison, Comic Reflections, David Ace Gutierrez, Doug Miller, Earth Destruction Directive, Gregor Rujo, Igor Glushkin, The Irredeemable Shag, Jared West, Jimmy McGlinchey, J Lux to the M, John Lee Hennessy, great name, Keith G. Baker, Leslie Hall Trigg III, Nicholas Prom, Robert McDonald, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, The Shazam Cast, Siskoid, Teen Titans Wasteland, Tim Trevitt, Tim Wallace, and Van Z. Avery Wayne Barnes said, My favorite comic of all time. Moving on to the website comments, remember folks, you can leave feedback on any episode of the Secret Origins Podcast by going to the Fire and Water Network at fireandwaterpodcast.com, or you can shoot me an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. As always, you guys are terrific and you leave a lot of thoughtful and detailed comments. I'm not going to read every word, but I encourage listeners to head over to the Fire and Water website and check out the full discussion. The first comment came from the Irredeemable Shag of the Fire and Water podcast, who mentioned that the Wally West Flash is one of his top five favorite comic book characters. Shag also pointed out a bit of an error on our part. During the show, Bass mentioned that Wally on the cover looked like Barry, and he should have been wearing the costume with the pointed bolts on his belt line. Shag said he wore a costume identical to Barry's for the first 50 issues. In issue 50, he got the white lenses, shiny suit, and pointed lightning belt. Therefore, the cover featuring both guys looking similar is about right. Shag also pointed out that the cover to Secret Origins Annual 2 looked like the ridiculous covers on the Robin 3 Cry of the Huntress miniseries, which had parallel lines with a slider you could use to simulate a moving image. Yeah, that's a good comparison. I don't know what that effect is called. It's not lenticular. I, I don't know, but a few people agreed with Shag that it looked like it was supposed to be a gimmick cover with some kind of motion effect that just never made it to the final process. Shag, by the way, is hosting the brand new Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. The first episode will be out a few days from now. You gotta check it out. It's gonna be... I believe the technical term is a rollicking good podcast, and yours truly is appearing on the first episode, so check it out for that too. Okay, Chris Franklin from the Supermates and Power Records podcast said, I'm kind of split on which Flash is mine, since I did read the Flash title for several years pre-crisis and followed Wally from beginning to end. Wally's backstory presentation here is interesting, since the actual character of Wally West was radically changed post-crisis by Mike Barron. Sure, he still looked the same, but Wally went from one of the most morally conservative heroes in comics under Marv Wolfman, with a very Cleaver-esque set of parents, to a womanizing, money-loving super-speed gigolo with a very dysfunctional family. Jason Todd may be the only other major DC character at the time who got such an extreme personality adjustment. Mesner Loeb slowly reconciled the two a bit. His Wally seemed like it could have been the same kid from New Teen Titans going through a bit of a weird phase in his life, which may include some psychoanalysis. Of course, Wade really took the reins of making Wally his own man and finally putting the ghost of Barry behind him, as you guys pointed out. 
And then DC just undid all of that by bringing Barry back. Uh, talking about Barry's origin story, Chris said, I do love the ending despite the flaws of the setup. Take out those unnecessary additions and you have a wonderful coda to not only this tale, but to Barry's life and career. Remember, The Trial of the Flash was massively maligned by about every comic reader at the time, including this one, because it just wouldn't end, and no one at DC would make a creative team change to save the book for some odd reason. So this was a nice final goodbye to the character in a way. Chris, of course, is another member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. He just released episode 50 of the Supermates podcast that he hosts with his wife, Cindy. If you haven't already done so, check out that episode. It includes guest spots by me and Rob Kelly, and we're all talking about the Alan Davis Elseworlds book, JLA The Nail. A new commenter, I think, named Dean Hacker said, To me, this is easily the greatest single issue of Secret Origins and two of the greatest Flash stories of all time. That is a bold declarative statement, Dean. It is a shame that the wonderful work that Mesner Loeb's did on The Flash, Volume 2, gets such short shrift from Bass. Mike Barron and Jackson Geist did fun stuff in the first year, but Mesner Loeb's and Greg LaRocque were brilliant. It was a lot more than whiny Wally, and it really did lay the foundation of everything to come, including the current Flash TV series. It is sad that it is not in print. Yeah, unfortunately, the Loeb's era is kind of a blind spot for me. I've read most of the Baron issues and didn't like them that much. I've only read a few issues at the start of Loeb's run and at the end, but Mark Wade's Born to Run or Year One, that story is such a terrific jumping-on point that I never really had much desire to go backwards. Diablo Frank from the DC Bloodlines, Marvel Superheroes, and Rolled Spine podcasts first explained why he hates super speed as a power set, so you can imagine where his comment is going. I was introduced to Wally West through New Teen Titans and his few animated appearances. I never liked him. He was whiny, judgmental, and so thoroughly derivative of his mentor that the only quality he had to offer was a better costume. I did pick up an early issue of the 87 series, relatively new as a discounted, dinged copy at a comic shop. It featured Vandal Savage, and I liked that guy immediately. I dug the Butch Geis art and Mike Barron leaning into Wally being a jerk through his adulterous affair with the Speed Demon's better half. It was enough to get me to buy a few more Millennium Period issues off the newsstand, but my interest faded quickly. I tried the book repeatedly during Mark Wade's run, especially stretches from 80 to 86 and 92 through 102. Not only couldn't I get past my dislike of Wally, but it seemed to me Wade was writing something closer to a stealth Superman family with all the speedsters. I also sampled Morrison and Millar and liked what Jeff Johns did with the Rogues, but still no love for Wally or Asian Lois Iris Lane West. I did appreciate that Wally showed legacy heroes could work in the DCU, but at the same time, Wally himself had nothing going for him besides being the kid sidekick that grew up to take on the mantle. I'm glad his development helped keep Barry's seat warm and heavily informed his personality expansion beyond Silver Age 2D into something sustainable across multimedia, but ultimately Wally West's greatest service was as a beta test for creating a truly iconic Flash out of a lucky bum placeholder. Okay, I am in a weird position where I can see Frank's point and I almost agree with him. After all, I like Barry Allen better than Wally West. I want to read Barry stories, not Wally stories. But I agree that Barry was a very white-bred character in the Silver and Bronze Age, and the resurrected Barry in modern comics and in the TV show 
really benefited from the character-centric ideas that Wally West explored during his time. Bradley Null, who you heard on this episode, said Secret Origins Annual 2 was the reason he started buying Flash. I hadn't liked Wally much in New Teen Titans, so I had no reason to read him as Flash, but I was collecting Secret Origins and thus bought this issue. I love the time loop in the second story. I always love a good time loop. I loved the Wally West story enough to start buying the Flash comic. This, for me, is where the legacy hero piece of the Flash began. It's also the first place I encountered the poem, If. Jeff Nettleton said, Wally and Barry are two different approaches to superheroes, products of their time. The Silver Age Barry stories are puzzles, which the Flash solves via science and speed, with plenty of visual gimmickry. His villains are gimmick crooks, who provide new obstacles for Barry to overcome. Wally is a product of an era that was more introspective and more character-driven, with stories often building to grand finales. Barry is about the wonder of speed and science, while Wally is about living up to a legend. That's a great point, Jeff. Very well said, and I love that comparison. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog said, I grew up a Barry guy. I read a lot of Bates-era stuff, especially in the Clive Yorkin slash Death of Iris years. Even though I was spinning a rack at a 7-Eleven, I would look for them. That was really my first foray into subplots as opposed to one-and-done stories. That said, Wally is my Flash. There was something about those late 80s DC books, fresh out of Crisis and post-Legends, which had an energy to them. The whole universe seemed invigorated, and seeing Wally grow from Baron to Mesner Lobes to Wade just worked for me. It helped, I suppose, that I was moving from adolescent to young adult during those books as well. And as someone who lives for twist endings and the Twilight Zone, I thought the Barry becomes the very lightning bolt which made him was a lousy turn. It actually makes me feel good that you liked it so much, Ryan. I'm glad it worked for someone. Again, to clarify, I love the idea of Barry running back in time at the moment of his death and becoming the very lightning bolt that created him. I did not like the way it was written or drawn in the story, but yes, I love the concept. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, This was certainly a mixed bag, a great Wally story, and one of the worst ever Barry tales. The imposter syndrome made sense, and was an early indication of the sheer smarts and empathy Bill Loeb's brought to Wally and his world. Loeb's de-jerking of Wally from the Baron run felt organic, and his building up of such cast members as Chunk, Mason Tolbridge, and the magnificent Mary West showed his knack for character. Um, I'm not sure if the term de-jerking means something different in Edinburgh than it does here. But anyway, Martin continues, Am I the only person who liked the trial of the Flash? The only thing that could have made it better was the death of that awful Fiona Webb, and the trial's length wasn't a matter of DC not knowing what to do with the Flash. It was a deliberate move on the part of writer and editor Carrie Bates, who was open about wanting a comic book trial to take as long as a real-life one. If memory serves, he even had a legal eagle pal advising. And then Martin raised another good point by wondering if the mopey angle, the sort of interdimensional sprite who claimed to cause the Flash's origin, what if that had been an origin for Wally West instead of Barry, thereby explaining the coincidence because Mopey was deliberately trying to recreate the same origin? I don't know, maybe that would have worked better? A listener named Moby One sided with Martin about enjoying the trial of the Flash, saying that it was around the time he started collecting comics as an adult. 
Moby One then talked about the concept of Barry becoming the Thunderbolt and said, The idea appealed to me immensely and years later is the thing I remember about the issue. It's a moment in the Flash canon that is definitely in my highlights reel. But listening to the recap, it seems likely that it is just the concept which has stayed with me rather than the approach or the detail in the story. So I would agree with Ryan's concluding assessment about the idea being worthy, but not everything about the story is. I suspect I'm remembering the book through rose-colored glasses. Maybe it's not a bad thing that I haven't reread it recently. And finally, Moby One said, Ryan, thanks for giving us the opportunity to relive this issue via the Very Fine Podcast episode. Well, thank you very much for saying so. Nathaniel Wayne from 90s Comics Retrial said, Seriously, how could you not put a trigger warning at the front of this? Just so many puns. Hey, Nathaniel, call me when you want a guest for your 90s comics podcast to talk about The Punisher. Ah? Ah? Uh, Last episode, Nicholas Prom and I talked a lot about the Flash's rogues, and we kept comparing Spider-Man villains, too. That discussion inspired a conversation between me and Nathaniel about Spidey villains in the upcoming Marvel Sony movies. That should be the next episode of Council of Geeks pretty soon. Check that out when it drops. Also, on the subject of the Flash rogues, Nicholas and I talked about our favorites, and a couple other people chimed in with their favorite Flash villains. Siskoid said his favorite was Mirror Master in the Flash book, but Captain Boomerang outside the Flash comics because of Digger's role in Suicide Squad. Chris Franklin likes Captain Cold because of Challenge of the Super Friends, and the Trickster because of Mark Hamill. Jeff Nettleton likes Captain Cold, Captain Boomerang, and Mirror Master, and Jeff also said, One of the great things about the rogues was that they were a bunch of blue-collar criminals who hung out together. Batman's foes might team up, but they tended to hate each other as much, if not more, than Batman. The rogues you could see going bowling, or having a few beers, or spending a night at the fights, before trying to rob the box office. The Justice League Unlimited episode with Flash and Orion really captured them well. It also did an excellent job of capturing Wally in his own environment, rather than with the Justice League, somewhat mirroring the Tick episode when he goes into the world of the sewer urchin. Okay, now listen guys. If you want to get out of here in one piece, stick close to me and do what I do. Tick, don't do what you do. Man, you are so cool down here. Oh yeah, down here I'm considered the apotheosis of cool. Did you just say apotheosis? As for everyone's favorite Flash villains, we will be talking about them again in the future, because the Flash rogues have their own issue of Secret Origins. That should generate some really fun discussions. Uh, But finally, two more comments. Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians said, I really hope that this rumor of a cancelled Showcase Presents line isn't true. I love those books, and I still don't have my third and fourth, and fifth and sixth, volumes of Jonah Hex yet. I don't think DC has released a Showcase Presents volume in three or four years. I'm, I'm pretty sure that line is dead. And finally, a listener named Tom N. wrote in saying, The Secret Origins podcast has been my introduction to the universe of podcasts. Since January, I've been binge listening to all of your Secret Origins podcasts, and I am now caught up. Both you and your guest hosts have been a great source of entertainment during my daily commutes to work and back home again. I remember reading and collecting the 1980s Secret Origins series, among the hundreds of other DC and Marvel titles I had at the time. Today, I'm 51, 
married, and the abundant number of white long storage boxes I once had in my basement are now in someone else's. But the in-depth discussion of each Secret Origin issue I've listened to for the past few months have taken me on a nostalgic adventure. Good times. Keep up the good work. I look forward to listening to future episodes. P.S. If it helps you to know, I have subscribed to your podcast via iTunes, and thanks to the Fire and Water Network, I have subscribed to First Strike and eagerly awaiting the JLI Bwahaha podcast. And oh yes, you also got me listening to Teen Titans Wasteland. Hilarious. That is awesome, Tom. I am happy you are enjoying the show. It's great that you're remembering these stories fondly, and of course, I'm happy that you're checking out some other great podcasts. On behalf of Siskoid and Bass from First Strike, Shag from Wahaha, and Hub from Teen Titans Wasteland, who will be on a future episode of this podcast, by the way, on behalf of all of them, thank you for your support. Thank you all for your support, whether you're retweeting or sharing on Twitter or Facebook or sending emails. This show can be time-consuming and exhausting, but I love it so much, and a big part of that is the feedback I receive every week. One more time, I want to thank Bradley Null and Max Romero for appearing on this episode. Folks, we're in the 30s now. There are only 20 more regular issues of this series left, and the next one is a doozy. Next week the secret origin of the Justice Society of America with three amazing guest hosts. It's gonna be wild. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily one or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Babe. I got you, babe. I got flowers in the spring. I got you to wear my ring. And when I'm sad, you're a clown. And if I get scared, you're always around. Don't let them say your hair's too long. Put your